Union County of San Francisco Board of Commissioners special meeting for February 29th, 2024. Time is 4.58 p.m. And we're gonna start with item number one for roll call, or item number two for roll call of commissioners, starting with uh, President Joaquin Torres. Present. Commissioner Leroy Lindo. Present. Commissioner Luana Kim. Present. And Commissioner Marianne Pikes. Present. Thank you. And we can go straight to item number three for the acknowledgement of the Ramatouche Olin community. The Ramatouche Olone. Thank you. <laughs> The Housing Authority of the City and County of San Francisco acknowledges that we are on the unceded ancestral homeland of the Ramatushaloni, who are the original inhabitants of the San Francisco Peninsula. As the indigenous stewards of this land and in accordance with their traditions, the Ramatushaloni have never ceded, lost, nor forgotten their responsibilities as the caretakers of this place, as well as for all peoples who reside in their traditional territory. As guests, we recognize that we benefit from living and working on their traditional homeland. We wish to pay our respects by acknowledging the ancestors, elders, and relatives of the Ramatush Ohlone community and by affirming their sovereign rights as First Peoples. Uh, thank you, President. And we can go to item four for the election of the President and Vice President of the Board of Commissioners of the Housing Authority of the City and County of San Francisco. Uh, this is, according to our bylaws, our annual meeting as the fourth Thursday of every February. And according to those bylaws, the president and vice president shall be elected at the annual meeting of the authority today from among the commissioners of the authority and shall hold office for one year beginning on the first regular scheduled commission meeting in the month following their election. Said officers shall serve until they are removed or until their successor are elected and have qualified. So at this time, I'd like for a motion for nomination of president. A motion from Joaquin Torres to remain president. Great. And Second. Sounds good. Mr. Joaquin Torres, do you accept this nomination? I accept the nomination wholeheartedly. Thank you. And before we go to vote, is there any public comment? To the chair, to the commission, it gives me great pleasure to stand before you. My name is Greg Richardson, Archbishop Greg Richardson, Jones United Memorial Methodist Church Secretary. And this Torres, you have before us is an angel in my own eyes from heaven. Like I said, UFO just dropped him off <laughs> and he's here. I go back with his father a long time back and to see the great work his family has done and to see the great work he has done. You know, these kind of positions, you have to love it. Oh, you just ain't going to do it. It is so grateful, and I'm so thankful for him accepting the position of leadership. Because uh, from the uh, citywide senior community, couldn't have a better person watching our back. So thank you for accepting the nominations. I hope you become elected, and San Francisco will be moving in the right direction. Uh, thank you very much. Is there any additional public comment? If not, we can go for roll call vote. Uh, Joaquin Torres? Uh, aye. Commissioner Lindo? Aye. Commissioner Kim? Aye. And Commissioner Pikes? Aye. Uh, congratulations, President Torres. Now we can go to Vice President. Is there a motion to nominate Vice President? I nominate Commissioner Lindo to remain as Vice President. Second. Leroy Lindo, do you accept this nomination? Absolutely. 
And before we go to vote, is there any public comment? Sounds good. Roll call vote. President Torres. Aye. Leroy Lindo. Aye. Commissioner Pikes. Aye. And Commissioner Kim. Aye. Thank you. Item number five, this is the election of the chair and vice chair and alternative member of the Development Finance and Operations Committee of the City and County of San Francisco. Similar to the Board of Commissioners, according to the bylaws, the committee chair and vice chair shall be elected from among commissioners of the authority and shall hold office for one year beginning on the first regular scheduled committee meeting in the month following their election. Said officers shall serve until they are removed or until their successor are elected and have qualified. Uh, President Torres, would you like to nominate the chair, vice chair, and alternative member? Yes, can you go ahead and, and remind, uh, for the record, those who are currently serving in leadership roles on that body, please? Yes, currently for chair, we have Luana Kim. For vice chair, I'm sorry, for chair, we have Leroy Lindo, vice chair Luana Kim, and alternative member is Joaquin Torres. Um, uh, just uh, for conversation uh, here, um, you know, do we want to continue uh, that same structure or do you want to flip for this coming year for development and finance? It really is an open question. Um, uh, it, it might make sense for there to be a little bit of movement here. Um, but again, I'm, I'm very happy to appoint, uh, again, to maintain uh, the consistency. I leave it up to the two of you to share that with me. Um, whatever I think work, works best. I think it has been working well. Um, Okay, all right. Yeah, I think it's been working well. Okay, so great. Fine. Fantastic. All right. Well, it's, it's nice to hear that it's working well and that the leadership role w wants to continue. <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, all right, so if, if we can continue the existing roles, including myself as an alternate member, uh, that would be my preference for, uh, for the appointments. That sounds good, President. Uh, congratulations. And we can go to item number six for general public comments. Uh, the portion of this agenda is not intended for just a, just yep. a quick uh, mm -hmm. point of order here. So it's listed as a number five, but it's not listed as an action item. Is that correct? There's no need to take a vote there. It's merely an appointment. Correct. Okay, great. Thank you very much. Item six, general public comment. This portion of the agenda is not intended for debate or discussion with the commissioner staff. Please simply state your business or the matter you wish the commissioner staff to be aware of. It is not appropriate for commissioners to engage in a debate or respond on issues not properly set in a publicly noticed meeting agenda. If you have questions or would like to bring a matter to the commission's attention, please send your communication via email to SFHA public comment at sfha.org. We did have a written public comment that I'd like to give first for David Anthony Woods. You can come to the stand for your public comment, and you'll have two minutes. Okay. Um, well, I was here um, three weeks ago, and I addressed uh, you folks on issues um, going on in my building. Um, they're basically um, managing the, um, the tenants and not the building. I'm not sure if you guys understand what that, what, what that yes. means. Yes. Yes, absolutely. Has there, been, has there been movement there, communication with you since you came to see us last? Has there been what now? Has anyone talked to you? No. All right. No. So, and um, there's another issue um, I mentioned about, I think, about a door that was bolted, if you guys remember. And mm -hmm. the fire department, I think, came and unbolted it. However, it's been bolted again. And there's another issue with the... Um, you know, in the building, it's like the, um, you know, the box, uh, what you call it, the uh, electric box or whatever that's in the mm -hmm. lobby. The, yeah, the, anyway, that's been making noise, and it's been going on for weeks now, and they haven't done anything about it, you know, and it's just. 
I just want to apologize that you have to come again today without having heard anything since that time. Right. So I'm going to ask a housing authority staff to, to connect with you right now. I know that the Kendra is here in the back uh, to talk with you directly right now. Um, and then if I could just ask that we, I could have a follow-up on uh, uh, conversations that are had with property management before our next meeting. Hold on one second because I want to make sure your, your mic works for the purposes of uh, recording. Okay. President Torres, thank you. Um, I'm certain that Kendra has spoken our Director of Housing Operations with Helen Hill from MOCHD. It is a rad property, and so we will do another follow-up. Generally, they do speak every Friday. So we will do a follow-up and actually report back out. Great. Yeah, I, I, I just want to, um, when time is taken from residents to come before uh, this body, uh, I, I want to make sure that, that we're closing the loops on uh, our, uh, the conversations that our partners may or may not be having with property management and making sure that the next steps are taken with residents um, on addressing those issues with them around issues that are affecting their buildings um, and just to make sure that they're following through on the promises and commitments that we're making. Um, so thank you very much for that, Director. Certainly. Any additional general public comment? Thank you very much uh, through the chair uh, and commissioners. Uh, it's the last day of Black History Month. Glad to be black. And uh, also we did celebrate as well with the Chinese New Year. We were in the Chinese New Year parade. We have a group called We Are One to stand against hate. Previously we spoke a little bit about my previous experience with the family developments with the uh, Leadership Commission under the leadership of Dr. Shirley Thornton, started a Resident Relations Commission, which consisted of buildings, but these were more of the family developments. They were not the senior developments. And so the Resident Relations Board would sit up there like you, residents would come and they would deal with the problems and then turn them over to you to try to make move the items because there's a lot of work that needs to be done. So we actually were also involved with the San Francisco First Public Housing Association in America. And what this particular association did is we partnered up with the mayor's office of purchasing, that was Ed Lee, under leadership of Willie Brown, and we started doing business and it really helped because one of our members was kind of a rate and just kicked in a door to open up a store in Betrayal Hill. But that store opened up and did well. So anyway, I just want to hope, hope to work with you and the citywide senior, we brought it up there that we can start something like that. Because, you know, residents are basically, nothing's going on too much because they can't really get the ideas out. So we might be able to help you help them. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any additional general public comment for item number six? Then we can close general public comment and go to item number seven for the president's report. Certainly, thank you uh, very, very much. Again, just want to, uh, in anticipation of Women's History Month, 
uh, that begins tomorrow. Uh, just to thank the leadership of the San Francisco Housing Authority, which I know that we look forward to in our meeting next month, during the month, to just recognize the leadership uh, of you, uh, CEO Lederju. Uh, and the work that your incredible staff does, uh, together with every woman who's serving on this body, including my fellow commissioners, I'm honored to serve with you. Um, uh, but also, of course, in recognition of Black History Month, it has been an extraordinary month of celebration. Um, uh, I was very on also honored uh, to be joined uh, by CEO Lederju uh, during the Lunar New Year Parade, um, uh, bringing our communities together uh, to celebrate uh, uh, the Chinese New Year Parade and the uh, Lunar New Year celebrations all across the city. Um, and of course, also uh, being able to be joined uh, by uh, a former intern of mine uh, for the Black History Month Parade in the Bayview. I want to thank all the partners that are out there that have uh, sought to uplift um, and ensure that our investments are present with community. But I also want to thank, of course, in anticipation of next month, uh, the extraordinary work uh, of uh, all of the women who are here serving uh, the Housing Authority and have for many, many years. And those of you who are newer as well, I just want to thank you very, very much for your continued service and your guidance, um, especially, uh, uh, I'm looking at you, uh, Diane, just thank you so much for your years of service, you being present with us, and um, being a very patient, steady, uh, guiding hand uh, th through your diligence uh, and communication with us as a board. I very much appreciate it. Um, as we move forward, and, and, and of course, also legally, um, uh, Ms. Linda Mason, thank you very, very much. Uh, um, thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. we, did, <laughs> we did. We did have fun. <laughs> and thank you, Kendra. Um, uh, I also, on a more uh, somber note, um, uh, I think many people have read in the papers around some of the issues with contractors. Um, uh, uh, serving uh, our communities in the southeast part of the city. And I just want to, again, state here that that kind of activity and that kind of action is both reprehensible and damages the public trust uh, that we seek to uphold and strengthen as we advance the public good here through the resources that we have, um, the public dollars that we have, and ensure that taxpayers and constituents alike know that we need to be investing our dollars with integrity uh, and serving uh, our residents uh, with that same integrity. Um, and that it's very unfortunate that we've had to once again see uh, that type of activity uh, impact our communities. And I just would uh, want to be sure that people take note of the city attorney's comments uh, in relationship uh, to that those actions, uh, that uh, the alleged actions that people uh, have taken uh, and the consequences as such. So uh, with that, I just want to ensure uh, again that uh, people understand that when they are uh, contracted with, uh, with this body or any city department, uh, that we expect them to act with integrity. Uh, and it is uh, a disservice to San Francisco when we see otherwise. But we'll talk more about that, uh, I'm sure, um, uh, in a continued way as we talk about the valued work that so many of our contractors, our staff, and we continue to do to, do to serve our residents. Um, thank you very much. Oh, and I'm sorry, and a, and a final uh, uplifting note. Uh, today on Leap Year, happy Leap Year Day, everyone. Um, on this February 29th, um, we swore in, uh, we said adieu to uh, controller Ben Rosenfield who had served the city and county for uh, t over 20 years, nearly 30 years. Um, 
my, minus uh, maybe a, a high school experience or a college experience. Um, uh, and, um, uh, and we swore, and Mayor Breed uh, swore in the new controller, um, who also uh, oversees the public integrity office uh, within that department, um, Greg Wagner. Uh, former uh, budget director for Mayor Gavin Newsom, former, uh, now former CFO for the Department of Public Health, and he is now our new uh, city controller for the city and county of San Francisco, and we welcomed him uh, to San Francisco with open arms today. Um, so uh, he is a wonderful person to take on that role, and very much looking forward to working with him uh, uh, in a continued manner. So thank you so much. Thank you, President. Item number eight, this is the tenant representative report, citywide councils or CCSD and public housing tenant association or PHTA. We do have Margaret McNulty here. Hi, good evening. Hello, Margaret good McNulty. evening, good to see Hi, happy leap year to happy everyone. Year. Uh, thank you for that intro because I have to speak on the same thing as far as integrity goes uh, on the inside. As you may or may not recall, I've been, I'm the president of CCSD now, but I've been training with them for over eight months and I was previously the secretary there. And they're at risk of becoming irrelevant. Their dysfunction in the way that they're handling their business is, is off-putting. And I have a solution, because I'm a kind of a problem solution girl. There's no reason why we can't think of solutions while the problem is, is uh, coming up. So um, this resident council committee idea, which would be under you, maybe as a line item, where we'd even have a budget that we could do things, that we could intervene for the interim between you and the tenants and CCSD. Ideally, how it's supposed to work is the tenants have an issue with management, and they go to their tenant association board, and we train them, and then if they have a problem they can't resolve, they bring it to CCSD's board, and we try and solve it on that level, and if the, we can't solve it, then we bring it to you, which is, your lap is so full already, I'm sure, so we should be putting out fires. Well, I'm boots on the ground, and I can tell you that there's a strong need for oversight uh, since Beverly Saba died, which is a couple years ago. Since then, the mismanagement is, and, and I'm not trying to tell a tale. I'm just trying to let you know the state of the union. I'm here to serve, and I'm still going to be working as the president as best I can to solve some of these issues. But uh, the suggestion of a resident council committee under you is a, just a brilliant idea. We could have a representative from each of the buildings have a voice, and um, I just think it would be better about putting out the fires on the levels of micro and then to you macro. So I appreciate everything you do. <laughs> I really do. Congratulations, President Torres. On, um, I look forward to working with you long into the future. Likewise. Thank you very much. Any public comment on item number eight? Yes, uh, Gregory Richardson representing the uh, member of the council citywide as well as North uh, John F. Kennedy Towers. It, it is badly needed. I'm glad she spoke on that issue because public housing family developments get a lot of support and attention. But as you age, moving on down the line, you seem to be forgotten about. 
And if you don't have a strong um, body of support backing you up, then it's kind of a depressing state in your buildings where people are shut in and they don't want to respond or do anything. Now, COVID was a perfect example how we can work together, pull together resources, support systems, and groups. So I, I really hope that that can happen where they can have some type of fun so they can let other people have and enjoy funding. But the main thing in this uh, issue is, is education, continual education, continual training, continual learning. As dementia comes in and health problems do come up, there needs to be some needs to be addressed to help all the residents, seniors, some of us are young too, uh, get the services implanted so we can implement. And if we can't implement them, then we need to partner up with someone that can help our councils. I think that will probably be the best fit. And I'll tell you right now, it is not easy working with public housing residents. I've been there for 30 years. But I love them, I love you, but I know we can do it. This city can do it, because it's a city that knows how. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any additional public comment for item number eight? I have to say one more thing. Um, I'd like to make an additional, product, uh, additional comment. Uh, most of the jobs that are needed are the ones that would intervene between the tenant and management or resident services. So. For instance, a lot of the buildings, Bridge, for example, isn't paying their participation funds. They're like three and four years behind at 25 Sanchez. And I know it's only gonna take the meeting I call triads, which the mayor's office has deemed um, to necessary, which is between management, resident services, and the board representative. They're supposed to meet monthly or bi-monthly, at the very least, to discuss the problems that people are having and or issues to keep it, to keep all the problems, the fire, then there aren't fires that you have to put out. So that's a hands-on thing that I think versus when we finally bring it to your lap. So I would, I'm talking about having a position that's more or less interactive, just I have to go to the buildings and just meet with the people and, and then there's open communication and everybody understands each other and like the MOU needs to be um, refreshed, the memorandum of understanding between the buildings. It just needs to be refreshed so that new management coming in knows what to do and that it's okay to hang signs on doors when we're announcing elections or, you know, just silly things like that. I mean, I don't want to say they're silly because they're not trivial. They're very important about the public rights, about we're just getting overlooked as seniors and disabled. I don't want them, I said, you're not here to die. You know, you're here to contribute. This could be the best part of your life that you actually have the support system and the services that are available and the needs being met. And that's just kind of my forte. So I hope that you'll consider it strongly. Thanks. Thank you very much. Um, CEO Lerjou, um the conversation around uh, resident services and the interaction and oversight around those services or tenant participation funds uh, and other, um, other resources that are, um, uh, are uh, highlighted as a need or are available to meet a need, um, do we have the opportunity to have the Mayor's Office of Housing 
uh, and Housing Authority uh, just jointly present an overview of how uh, those services are being delivered currently in support of our sites. I, I'm, uh, I, I think and it's very refreshing um, to have you both speak around this from a CCSP perspective, especially since Beverly's passing in this structured way. It's very helpful to see it uh, in, in that manner. It, would, it might be useful for, for us just to, again, be reminded at this body um, what resources are being provided, what the portfolio of those properties are that are under RAD or otherwise, uh, how they're being serviced, just to provide an overview. I'm not looking uh, um, beyond that at this moment, but for us to get an assessment of uh, how we can and should be engaging. This is an issue that has been a bit of a gray area, uh, I think, for us collectively, so I'm glad that you're raising it. Um, uh, post-rad, uh, and I, I would love the opportunity to, to, to dive into that a bit further. I know I'm sounding a bit opaque right now, but I, I'm just not quite sure where to uh, engage. I'd just like to answer that. Uh, we are working with Helen Hale right now, uh, basically putting it on her lap for the multi-buildings that are not producing the HUD participation rights. But in uh, the, her defense, the reason why we're not getting allocated some of that money is because of the EIN number and the nonprofit status that CCSD has let go to the wayside. At this time, they're revoked of their EIN number. Now, I've been working closely with a nonprofit uh, legal firm and with the IRS advocacy group that works with you now. Mm -hmm. If you request it properly, <laughs> go through about seven, seven requests. But. Um, I, there's a way that we can actually get retroactively reinstated for like the low, low price of $600. Right. So, and it, so we are working, we just need those participation funds and Helen Hale's working with us to get those letters out and we're meeting with, I'm meeting with them personally to say, you know, to, to get the um, olive branch across. I'm, I'm glad you highlighted the work no, of Helen Hale. Thanks. Thank you very yeah, much for saying awesome. that. So President Torres, we have been in communication with um, OCD, in particular Helen Hale, around bringing back a form of the RAD uh, reports that we used to have pre-COVID. And so we are in the process right now of just narrowing down what that report will look like and services are part of that report. And then as far as Hope SF sites, which are our Hunters View, Petrero, Sunnydale, and Alice Griffith sites, we do have a calendar for this year uh, where each one of them will come at least once during the year to talk about the development and what's happening with resident services. And those are already calendared for 2024. Great, thank you. Thank Just you. one other item of consideration Please. is the fact that even when the buildings get their participation funds, many of them are not able to pay us at CCSD. Our um, percentage that we're supposed to have allocated is 10% per uh, full unit. Mm -hmm. And uh, so therefore, it would be, we can't do anything without money, and that's kind of why else I thought maybe we could fall under some sort of line item that's being given to, uh, to broaden the position and to make sure that we can do the work that's needed. Okay, great, thank you. Public comment is still open for item number eight. Any public comment? Then we can close public comment, go to item number nine, starting out with item number 9A. This is the Chief Executive Officer's Report, Plaza East update. We have Ron Bowen from John Stewart. Thank you, good evening. Good evening, Commissioners, President. Uh, do we wanna start with the first slide tonight? There we go. You have to train for the TV, sorry. It's okay. The first slide is the staffing report. Um, 
I was able to report last month for the first time in a long time that we were fully staffed. We were also fully staffed in January. However, I have an update. We lost two maintenance people in February. They were our two new hires and they both left. Um, so that was really unfortunate. Um, I'm sure you I'm guys so all sorry know to that. hear that. Yeah, onboarding is is a time-consuming thing, and uh, yeah. now we're going to do it again. Um, I will say we already have one experienced temp in place, and we have a second one starting Monday. So um, we're still able to make sure that we're getting the work done that we need to. Um, yeah, so uh, that is our staffing report. Next slide, please. Ah, the next slide is the uh, work order slide. So um, we had 169 work orders open and closed in January. Um, the average time to do a work order was one day. We had uh, 17 emergency work orders last month. We closed them all, and the average was 15 hours. Um, I would draw your attention to the number of emergency work orders, uh, 17. We average about four and a half per month generally, and it was kind of amazing having 17. Um, I had some questions about that, and I thought you might have also. So I took the liberty of checking each one of those work orders. There were um, three for toilet leaks or toilet malfunctions. There were three caused by floods, which is not unsurprising because of the rain we've had. Uh, there were two for heating, and there were three for appliances. The other handful were miscellaneous things like a front door lock that wouldn't work, uh, items like that. So again, um, we were able to fix all the emergency work orders within an average of 15 hours. None of them took more than one day. On the, I know that flooding has been an issue at Plaza East uh, consistently whenever we have uh, heavy rains. Uh, it's great to see that those work orders have been closed. Um, uh, are there, just from your perspective, is a comprehensive damage from that flooding um, uh, going to continue to be an issue for those units? I I'm speaking from uh, very much from anecdote, um, and that's why I'm just asking here for, for clarity, is I've heard sometimes that when the, uh, the work orders are, are completed or closed, there still are outstanding issues based on flooding that have occurred that can lead to mold, rotting, et cetera. Um, how are those issues being dealt with uh, with regards to those units, or is that not an issue? I believe the answer is these were exterior floods. They did not affect, affect units. Okay. No um, mold, everything water was dried up. Were they in units? Or, sorry, is this okay? Yeah, no, uh, no it would be, be helpful if, if there are some responses to, to come on up. Michael? Don't be shy. This is Michael Liard. He is the property manager. He's been uh, working at this property for about a year, and he came from another San Francisco property before that. Um, Good evening. Uh, these three floods were all related to a single um, plumbing issue in uh, interior of one of our units. We did immediate response to clear up any water before there was permanent damage, um, any uh, mold or any other such issue. Um, we have discovered there is an inherent plumbing problem in one unit that we are currently working on to, uh, before the next rainy season. And, and then just in terms of any residual damage um, uh, based on that flooding or, or any other um, type of damage issue that could result in mold um, um, or other issues like mold? 
No, we uh, on my maintenance team or on weekends sometimes vendors were able to rapidly re eliminate all water, so there would be no residual uh, problems. Okay, and um, if residents feel otherwise, they know that they can still come to you and ask for additional attention to deal with the issues within those units. Yes. Okay. All right. Okay. Great. Thank you very much. So that when I go and talk to resident council leadership, that's the same answer I'll receive back, correct? Yes, sir. Okay, let's, let's see. I mean, let's we see. certainly hope so. Uh, yeah, our door is always open. So we uh, log every emergency call. Um, they all come to myself, my regional manager, and the office, so we, we do quality assurance checks. It's very, you know, it's, it's very helpful to see this. It's very helpful to see you be proactive about questions that you know we're gonna ask. Um, uh, as your business, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Is there any more questions about the work orders? Any, uh, commissioners, any questions? I don't know, thank you. Great, uh, next is uh, slide four, which is a graph of the work orders, which I think we've already addressed. Uh, slide five is the unit details. Uh, we, um, this is a work in progress, this report, and I want you guys to notice there's a new row this month, which is units that are vacant, either are being used as a hotel or being remodeled, but are not available for rent and are not occupied. Before those numbers were incorporated into the vacant units, um, we did not want to represent units that were vacant and ready for rent um, that weren't. So we created another column. Um, and broke it out a little further. Um, currently, there's 163 occupied units. There's four units that are occupied and ready to rent, um, and we've put in referral requests for them. There's 11 units that are vacant and not ready to rent. Um, two of them are being used for hotels. A couple of them have, uh, two of them are used for hotels. Two of them are being repaired. Uh, two of them are being held by two residents, and we're addressing that through the legal process, not the eviction process, but with the help of the attorneys. Um, and uh, in February, we put in nine more referrals to the Housing Authority. Um, there's 15 units offline because of uh, significant repairs needed or because they're being used by the security or the services offices. And that is uh, the occupancy report. Is there any questions on that? Um, none from me. Commissioners, any questions on occupancy? Nope. Any, uh, any other issues around occupancy or um, confusion that residents have been sharing around the status of those units or the habitability of those units at all that you're, that you're aware of? I don't believe so. I, um, I will say that, as I mentioned, there's a couple residents that, quite frankly, they're occupying two units. When we were doing some emergency repairs, I think, and this mm -hmm. was before my time, they moved to another unit and they, the repairs took a while and they got settled in and we have not been able to compel them to move their stuff into one unit or the other. I, this is my personal opinion, but the units are small and people have a lot of stuff and um, it's hard to get myself or anybody else to, to squeeze back into the space they were in before. Okay, and, and what's, the, what's the general plan around that? I mean, um, 
in terms of what is a unit that's able to be occupied and what people are paying for those units and the subsidies associated with those units, how are you approaching that? Is maybe something of interest that you can share next time that you see us? I can share it right now. So, so the first thing we do is we work with services and we, we tell them there's a problem and, and we try to both talk to the resident and make sure that we can discuss it with them and see the challenges to them. Do you need help moving? Can we get a moving company? Which unit would you like? How can we help you? Things like that. Um, and we've tried that and services has tried it and we've gotten to the point where we've had to have our attorney write a letter. We're still a long ways from having to take any kind of legal action, but you know we're at the point where we're hoping that an attorney letter will prod them into um, doing what they need to do. Okay, thank you very much. How uh, long has this person been occupying two units? Several months. Several months. Do you have an exact number? No, sir. But I can, I can get that to you next month, if that's okay, or sooner, if you'd like. In, in, in situations like these, I mean, given that John Stewart is a, a major management company across, uh, across a variety of portfolios, um, what is the typical response of allowing this type of behavior or the timelines associated with uh, occupancy of units in this manner? I would have to say a lot of it has to do with the appetite of the controlling agencies to compel people to move. Um, and uh, my personal feeling is we move very slowly. Um, we really try to be compassionate to the residents. Um, I do realize that when people have two units, there's two people living on the street that don't have a unit. I mean, at the end of the day, that's the consequence. Mm -hmm. And uh, the housing authority and HUD paid for these units to be one family per unit. And that's, it's my job to make sure that happens. Um, at the other side of the coin is I'm trying to be compassionate to these households that um, often have mental disabilities, um, they're senior citizens, there's other things going on. So uh, we have several vacancies right now. It's not super urgent. We're trying to move slowly, um, but steadily towards the target of getting them back into a unit. Okay, thank you, thank you. That was my last slide. Are there any more questions for, uh, for John Stewart? What's to prevent other tenants to occupy two units? So what happened in this specific particular example is there were repairs being done to their unit, so they were given another unit to stay in while those repairs were being done. So that's how they ended up having keys to a second unit while some of their belongings were stored in the first unit. So what it, that's not a, a common thing to happen. Um, it happened because of extensive repairs that were being done last year. Um, generally, people don't do this because it's illegal to have two units. They, we move them to another unit, we, we, we hire movers to help them, we repair their unit, and they're glad to go back to their unit that's been all fixed. It's usually better than it was when we moved them out because on top of just fixing the repairs, they probably got a new paint job and some other things that happened also. So it's generally not a problem. You know, there is legal code that says they can only have one unit. There's HUD rules that say they can only have one unit, but on a practical basis, there's not much keeping them from occupying two units. So it's my understanding that the unit that was to be repaired has been repaired, and the person is occupying two units. The person has not moved back yet, yes.
I'll we should probably follow up offline on this one. Yeah. yeah. All right. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Good evening, commissioners. I am Camille Hegney, the resident services coordinator at Plaza East with FRH Consulting. So for this month for relocation, we were able to successfully assist property management with the one relocation or transfer that happened on site. Again, that is, i.e. getting in touch with the residents, understanding what's going on for the transfer, um, any needs that they might have, whether that might be boxes, um, tape, moving assistance, um, anything like that, we assist them with that. And as far as tenant engagement goes, we were able to host a New Year's kickoff in partnership with DPH Crisis Services, SVIP, and Keisha Cares. That was for 51 residents. Um, we also hosted a coffee hour in partnership with YMCA Buchanan, and we were able to get 11 residents to come out for that community building. Um, also, the residents love it. We provide weekly hot meals to about 18 families and counting um, on site on Wednesdays at 12. So the residents look forward to that a lot. It helps being able to cut back on costs for extra groceries or, you know, going to grab food that's outside. Um, we also were able to host a healing and wellness event for um, grief counseling in partnership with DPH Crisis Services for five residents. It was a little bit more of a focused um, grief counseling group. And then also we've provided on-site technology um, support and computer literacy training in partnership with Dev Mission on site. That's on Mondays and Tuesdays from 10 to 4 p.m. in the community center. We've also assisted with scheduling um, healing and wellness one-on-ones for some of our residents who might be going through a little bit more right now. Um, sometimes our residents come and contact us, especially when things are getting a little heavy. Sometimes they've lost a loved one or even just going through some different stressful moments. Um, and sometimes they like to be able to have people to talk to. Sometimes those people are us and sometimes those people are our representatives at DPH Crisis Services, um, whichever they prefer. So we were able to schedule some one-on-ones with them. Um, we were also able to assist property management with some resident outreach for the open work order meetings. We want to make sure that those repairs are getting taken care of in a timely manner and if services has to be able to um, follow up on those and hand out um, flyers for outreach, we're happy to do so. Um, we also met with our tenant association um, in collaboration to plan for the events in February. That was very helpful and um, Tenant Association was in support of all of the partners that we had coming into Plaza East and the events. Um, and then to be able to wrap everything up, we are happy to say that we have been able to service 75 residents with our connections, referrals through January. Um, this may be IE in financial coaching, anger management, substance abuse, PG&E assistance and more. Um, for our support and service referrals, we are at 95 residents participated, and out of those four specific events and workshops, we are at 67 residents participated. Just a quick question. When you say thank you very much, you're welcome. When when you talk about the tenant association, do you mean the mm -hmm. resident council? Yes. Okay, so you're just sorry about that. Yes. No, mm -hmm. I just want to make sure I understand who who we're talking about. Yes, sir. Um, great. Thank you very much. Any questions from commissioners? This is a great update. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you very much.
Hi, I have a question, please. Thank you, through the of chair. Course. Thank you for all the great work, and I just see the numbers are increasing, and I really thank you for continuing to work in partnership with our tenant association, and um, the collaboration that is going on on site is really important, and mm -hmm. also just wanna thank you for continuing to work with our property management company, and can you tell, share with me a little more, mm -hmm. as you're working on site, how you are engaging other residents who have yet um, have taken um, interest or participated in the services that you're providing. Yeah, so um, kind of speaking about, uh, speaking about how I'm able to reach them. Okay, yeah, so um, one thing, I know you guys spoke on it earlier, but like building trust with the residents, I feel like it's really important being able to have somebody who is somebody just like you in the community who has also been able to work with somebody as myself or Shaquan Burdett on my team as well at Plaza East. Um, being able to make sure that we're creating a trusting relationship with them in a safe environment where they feel where they feel comfortable to be able to voice themselves and share what short-term goals they might have, long-term goals, um, being able to create that environment for them and then always making sure that I'm able to um, let them know in words what we are doing other than just providing them with a flyer. Um, if they need more follow-up, I feel like if you're able to explain something more in more detail to somebody so that they can understand who they are, what they're doing, what the purpose is, and how it's gonna be able to impact them, I feel like we have a lot better of a chance at building that relationship with them. And when somebody's able to say, hey, I've worked with Camille and Shaquan, um, I really trust them, you should check them out. They were able to assist me with making sure my light stayed on, or getting my rent um, paid up, or even just providing us with four hot meals for the week. Um, it does help with the residents being able to say, oh, okay, like I'm gonna go ahead and give that a shot. And so on an average with your Wednesday meals, which mm -hmm. um, I know is really important because during the yes. pandemic, we dropped. 30,000 bags of groceries and when I go to the grocery store and I look at how much groceries have um, escalated, right. oftentimes I think about all of our wonderful families and how exactly. that is going along for families. So on an average, how much are you spending per month um, to help provide an extra meal and provide relief? So between our events, we also like to be able to provide hot meals during those as well. So in collaboration with DPH, um, SVIP, and Keisha Cares, I'd probably say somewhere around like maybe $400 a month, um, roughly. That's just off the top of my head. But we also like to be able to access and give our residents access to the food banks, like you said, different things that they can be able to access um, close by in the community that are there at their leisure for them to be able to um, use. Thank you, thank you of for course. your work. Thank you guys. Any other questions? Okay, thank you. Hi, commissioners. Um, Zawadi Long with the Housing Authority. Um, I was asked to present about the capital improvement solicitation update. Uh, just the just the capital improvements or also the resident oh. the, the services okay great perfect 
So uh, just for the timeline, so the first slide here is just starting with the capital improvement solicitation. Uh, the procurement method that's going to be used for that particular one is the invitation for bids um, or sealed so bid. So why do you, may I just interject for a second? Can you give us just the, the framing again? Um, I, I'm very familiar just because of how much I've been involved with the, the Plaza East uh, conversation. Commissioners, uh, again, um, this is a continuation of we were hearing around emergency repairs on site. Based on conversation, if I may, Zawadi, mm -hmm. you want to uh, jump in, please? Of course. Please, please do and just cut me off. Um, uh, because I know you've been very engaged at Plaza East as well. Um, the conversations that the Housing Authority and other city partners have had with the Resident Council, aka Tenant Association, have been grounded in um, uh, confusion around uh, proposals related to redevelopment that would um, uh, potentially change uh, the nature of the living environment at Plaza East. In conversations with the resident council directly that we've had, we um, have uh, learned more that the more immediate needs of uh, the resident council pertain to issues of habitability um, and immediate services that we just heard about, whether it's around meals, tenant engagement, support, coordination with property management. The, um, uh, the uh, immediate needs were around emergency repairs, um, mm -hmm. and I know that we've uh, completed those, correct? Correct. Um, and so then the next stage of that is, well, what other resources uh, is the city and the authority bringing to bear to support um, uh, resident needs on site? And then also, uh, at the same time, to complement those capital repairs, separate from the emergency repairs, um, what additional services uh, and resources can we bring to bear at Plaza East? Uh, and that's what we're um, uh, discussing today. So Zawadi, thank you very much for bringing that to us. Yes, and thank you. Excellent synopsis. Oh, good. Phew. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we have prepared an initial draft of the um, IFB for capital um, funds. And we will be, we are internally, we've been internally reviewing it. We'll be finished with our review um, by tomorrow. And so between March 1st and March 11th, it will go to the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development for review and for their uh, input because they have um, potentially committed $2 million investment in this um, plan as well. So we're allowing them to align with us on what they would like to see in the uh, solicitation. And then between March 12th and March 15th, we would then review and incorporate any of MoCD's comments um, where accepted, and then schedule um, of discussions would be um, put on schedule as needed. And then we're anticipating uh, publishing the IFB by March 22nd. Um, now this could be subject to, to change depending on how quickly um, alignment can be reached about the final solicitation document. As soon as we say we've got a great product, we can put it right out and start the two-week process of um, public advertisement. So that's where we are right now with our tentative schedule for that. And then the next slide, now this, it's following the same schedule because we worked on uh, both solicitations pretty much at the same time, so we'll be putting them out to MoCD at the same time. Uh, but the resident services solicitation will be procured through the request for proposal method. Um, and you'll see that the timeline is the same. 
We have been, we did it at the same time. We've been reviewing it. We're gonna get it over to MoCD within that same March 1st to 11th um, timeline. We hope to get all comments back between that March 12th and 15th to align. And this is um, because the Mayor's Office of Housing and Community Development have uh, current and ongoing investments on-site at Plaza um, for, for resident services as it is. So we wanna make sure that we are being very cohesive and aligning with the services that's already happening on-site and because we really just wanna supplement that. Um, and then, again, depending on how quickly we can get into alignment of the final solicitation product, we would be able to publish that, um, which also has to go for two weeks in the paper. Um, so it could happen by March 22nd or sooner or later if there happens to be a lot of um, you know, comments back and forth. But we're shooting for March 22nd to also put that one out. And then as far as, so that's, the, that's just the schedule of where we are now. Um, as far as when any of this stuff can, you know, um, be completed, I think that the RFP might take just slightly longer because the RFP process, you do have to have a evaluation panel, whereas the IFB, you do not. So um, we might actually get the capital services one figured out and a contractor selected. Both would happen in April, likely, but um, we probably would get that one figured out quicker than we would the services one just because of the way the processes work, but they would both happen some fairly quickly within each other uh, in April, like late April, if we follow this schedule. Mm -hmm. What will the communications be to residents about this next phase? Um, uh, is, is a question I wanna make sure around engagement that the authority is taking with partners, that the resident council, those who've been involved and raise the issues uh, to us directly around what their highest concerns are and their highest questions are mm -hmm. around uh, habitability, uh, investment, and services. I just wanna make sure that that is being communicated to uh, the resident council and residents as well so they're aware of the work that's being done to respond to their needs. Mm -hmm. I know that, um, uh, number one, there's been uh, already some immediate work but it hasn't been communicated, and that's often a problem for, for us as a city. We just start doing the work without communicating uh, fully, so I'm not, it's not a criticism, I'm just sharing this as a, as a need. Mm -hmm. um, uh, because it's great that we actually have resources, that the city has done the coordination to make these resources available uh, on site, but just making sure that communication is ongoing. Um, uh, and it's relayed back that yes, there's understanding that this is what the next phase, we took care of emergency repairs, now the city is committing additional funds to deal with uh, these needs in the following two ways, capital improvements that will allow for X, Y, and Z of those improvements, and then secondarily, the services, and then here is how we're seeking to augment and or complement existing services on site, and also uh, procure for additional services. Mm -hmm. Just so, so the residents know, because what we've heard continually is, as you, as you all know, I'm just you know refreshing for, for all of us here, is are we being neglected as residents? Um, are our needs not being taken seriously? Um, uh, are the nitty-gritty issues around services uh, not being followed through on, mm -hmm. which is why we've been so rigorous in terms of property management. And again, I wanna thank uh, John Stewart Company for following through on those concerns. Um, and also the work that the Housing Authority has done to help uh, press uh, on those concerns as well continually. I know it's a lot of work to do mm -hmm. uh, to make sure that we're organized, coordinated, and communicating, but I just wanna, I, I just wanna reinforce how important that is. Mm -hmm. 
to ensure that our residents know that we care about them, that we're responsible in the structure of resources that we're bringing to bear, mm -hmm. that are directly informed by their requests of us uh, and their experiences. And we are doing that work. Um, we are about to bring those resources to bear uh, to address and respond to those needs. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make sure that we are, they feel that that is coming from us directly in the clearest way possible, obviously much clearer than how I just explained it, but yes. that would be the hope. Thank you, President Torres. So one of the things that we will do and continue to do is work with the tenant association in communicating where we are in the process, reminding them what we are doing, as well as taking the time to send a formal letter because we have been also working with the tenant um, council along with a host of others in the community. So sending a formal document as well as sending some com different types of communication and actually firing the different our doors so that individuals know that this is what's happening and this is what's coming. And then, in addition to residents, obviously our existing partners yes. that have already been procured to do this work um, so that they are aware of the, the narrative in the simplest terms possible uh, to communicate to residents as well. Right. I mean, that, and that, so that's a desire. Certainly. And so we do have um, thank you to our general counsel, Linda Martin. We do have a regular plaza meeting where housing authority staff are all on that meeting, those who need to be on that meeting, where we have services, John Stewart, all of our partners at Plaza. So this information is being communicated. They're quite well aware of it. And so they too are messengers along with us. And we will ensure that together we are clear and we can communicate in different ways that are helpful for the residents so that they understand that we heard and we're continuing this work. Great. Thank you very much, Sawadi. Thank you, Commissioner. Yeah. Any other commissioner comment? Oh, just, uh, Zawadi, I, I neglected to say your name earlier when we were talking about uh, the leadership of the Housing Authority. I want to thank you for all the work that you've been doing in honor of the forthcoming in a few hours of Women's History Month. And I just want to appreciate how much time you spent on the ground that I've seen you directly uh, just join this team in such an um, integrated manner. And just thank you very much for your leadership. Item 9B is the Petrero and Sunnydale update. Pardon me. Good afternoon, Commissioners. Teresa Peckler, Eugene Berger Management Corporation. Um, I wanted to share our update with uh, our activity uh, for the prior month of January. Um, one, some of the highlights that I wanted to let you know what our January initiatives were is as we have discussed, we've had some staff, staff key role staff positions. Um, and as such, we wanted to do some due diligence. So we've performed a 100% audit of all of the vacant units. We were hearing um, some discrepancies in numbers, what was happening, wasn't happening, um, caused me to doubt what I was getting reports from the site. So I brought in an independent team from outside of the area with EBMC 
that came and performed the 100% audit where they were getting in and behind every single vacant door to know exactly what the condition of it was, especially we've got roof, roof issues, we've got possible um, 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 compromising of the boarded units. We wanted to make sure that there was a 100% audit. So we've now um, comprised all of that data. We know what's happening. We're, we're doing our due diligence to follow up with that. Um, we, do, or we, are, we are working on some evictions of individuals that are trespassing. We've worked with the police department and have actually ushered several folks out. Um, that's always challenge because <laughs> they like to come back the next morning but we have kept up that diligence with regards to it we are also working with um, one of the things that we've done that has really helped get good reports is you're only as good as the eyeballs on the staff uh, on the property on a daily basis but um, I've taken it a, dip, a little different measure where I've actually created a hotline and posted a hotline number on all of those vacant units. So now residents are also feeling free to call the hotline. And I'm now getting regular phone calls. Hey, somebody's now in this unit that wasn't there. I know it's um, supposed to be a vacant unit. And so we're able to act much more quickly when a resident sees somebody showing up with tools at 11 o'clock at night to break into a vacant unit to, to um, those types of things. So first thing the next following morning, um, we're able to find out um, before my teams are even walking the property to check what the status that those units are. And so that initiative has worked out really, really well. So Can you, um, just, uh, just, just a quick um, interjection. Uh, th thank you for that. Can you share just um, uh, a little bit about uh, just reminding us when you began that the the, the phone call triage of availability. Um, it's been the, a couple of weeks, or the, on uh, on one twelve, we were done going through all of the units. Mm -hmm. We were posting the signs. The following week, one hundred percent of the units had the hotline number um, affixed. It's a mm -hmm. it's a label that you literally have to That's tear right, off. Yeah. And um, just today I received my second set of shipment because the second um, part of that, I want to put the San Francisco trespass order so that when the police department comes, they also have the language, the, the pre-disclosure, the one year that I've notified the public that no one should be touching this unit. Just in terms, um, uh, if you can, just uh, roughly, uh, how many vacant units are there uh, on site right now that you would be concerned about if you received a call? Depending on the site, um, I have, well, we have a lot of vacant units, so I'm concerned with all of them, obviously. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the report on, on the next slide, uh, it shows you what the vacancies are. And with any property that's going through the conversion that this property is, and the onboarding of new properties, those numbers of vacancies continue to rise. Yeah, and, and they fluctuate. The, the, the purpose of my question is, is really to, um, you, have, uh, you have a method of gaining real-time information from residents on site mm -hmm. around vacant units and uh, uh, I'll just say compromised va mm -hmm. va vacant units for people that are seeking shelter. Yes. Um, uh, albeit um, uh, illegally. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, 
the reason I'm just asking about that level of uh, of volume that, that you're receiving is because that becomes a city issue for us, mm -hmm. uh, and it certainly is very helpful to know that there is another method for us to be able to find out when those units are being compromised. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's very good to hear that that is one of the tools that you're using mm -hmm. uh, to share that information. In, in terms of the Housing Authority's response uh, to, to those items, what's the feedback loop like in terms of when we hear about these issues, um, certainly, it's an operational concern of mm -hmm. you go out, you talk to the, you talk to whoever it is um, uh, uh, occupying those units. I'm uh, certain that you're applying resources and services, letting the people know they're not allowed to be there, etc. Um, but then, in terms of a, a citywide policy response or resource need that we might have as a city, how is that working? I don't know if we have the answer to that right now, but it, but but it's something that I would be very curious to know about in a future meeting. Yeah, I would just say that we, when we became aware of the, this particular situation, the Housing Authority immediately engaged with um, the Homeless Department along with our Hope SF partners. These are Hope SF sites. And um, service providers have gone door to door at the sites to try to identify individuals who may be at the sites what services are available to them to try to get them soft landings in particular. Mm -hmm. um, but our key focus has been health and safety. These units are not habitable. They have not been inspected. And uh, as soon as services touch, you know, touch a, a household, they're already offering what the city has is available. So depending on whether it's an individual or family, but they have been out there working for the last month on this. And even in units that because even if we've unboarded them, because I made them check 100%. Even units that as we unboard, and if somebody still had belongings from the prior resident that moved out and was of question to us if it was the prior resident or if somebody maybe had compromised and now it's they're gone and now we've boarded it back up, even in those cases, that same resource list we left inside the unit. So that so at least you know if anybody it's only as good in real time right something I can I could board something up at five o'clock by six thirty I might have somebody trying to attempt to get into it so it, it is something that we're wanting to make sure we're checking and checking diligently um, and making those resources that resource um, list available both at our office working with the with um, the authority. Uh, and with the other teams for those outreach, for that outreach. Thank you very much. Oh, I did want to also mention the hotline number. We also posted it in multiple languages. So no matter whom may be coming by, we made sure that it was um, very evident to anyone to be able to call that number. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm. Wanted to also highlight the January initiative. We have identified a site bookkeeper and um, a site analyst, um, and those individuals are um, have come this month have completed the training and onboarding, and so they in your my next report they will be added into the employee count. Because we've had the um, staffing changeover. Some of the challenges too that we are looking at is how do I integrate um, the new staff with our CBOs? Um, so some of the couple of th things that we've been doing to make it easier to be able to bridge that new introduction, that 
Who do I email? How do I know? All of Shanti's staff knows how to contact this individual or that individual if that email is not being responded to anymore because they're gone. So what we've done. Just a quick uh, higher level question on that. What is the what is the manner in which the policies around vacant units and occupancy are communicated to partners currently? I think from the yeah I think at the highest level from a policy perspective from the housing authority how how are those rules and those protocols communicated to partners whether it's uh, communicated to EBMC per your future communications mm -hmm. with other community-based partners but how those existing ones how is that information being shared? So vacant units are known because they're part they're sub, they're subsidized or they're not so there's vacant there's a vacant unit report if I can say that. But as far as whether those units are uh, broken into, I, or I mean, I, 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 I mean something much, much, much higher okay. level than this, which is, who is communicating? Whether it's to EBMC, uh, whether it's to Ashanti or another CBO-like partner, what our city policies are and the housing authority collective policies are around vacancy and occupancy. How is that message coming to partners around uh, what our protocol is in terms of when you see a vacant unit, uh, when a vacant unit is reported? Because we are a village um, of partners who are serving uh, the needs on site for residents. Um, how is that being communicated? Is it coming through us as a housing authority? Is it first and foremost coming through, and I'm just gonna ask mm -hmm. a bunch of general questions. Um, is, it, is it coming from us as a housing authority? Is it coming from the city partners, meaning Hope SF staff? Uh, to those partners, how is that? How is that communication traveling? So, from the housing authority as the contracting agency with our on-site property managers, we have a weekly meeting, and one of the agenda items on the weekly meeting includes vacant units and what action is being taken on those vacant units. We have, since the beginning of the contract with EBMC, talked about um, how, for example evictions work, what our ideas of a process for evictions regarding non-payment of rent versus vacant units versus health and safety issues, because they are all handled differently. Um, and EBMC is well aware of that. And we, at this point, uh, have been working with them to ensure, again, that the services step in and are able to assist with staff landings for those individuals that are not health and safety concerns. As far as the services go, maybe Kendra Crawford, maybe if you could step up and talk about your weekly meetings with, with the services. Kendra is our housing operations director, and she is uh, on weekly meetings with our partners. I, I just want to say thank you for sharing some of those details because it helps just kind of highlight some of these Absolutely. larger policy questions. Good evening, commissioners. Um, I do have weekly meetings with uh, Shanti and Patrell, Marcy and Sunnydale, and we talk about... Um, their relationship with EBMC, I do help to bridge the gap on some of those relationships, and Teresa and I um, talk a lot. Um, we, we're also talking about individual residents, the individual households, and their um, whatever barriers they may be having. And sometimes it is just, just that they want to talk to me or someone from the Housing Authority to um, make the connection between um, the Housing Authority and EBMC, and so we do that. Um, but I think that Residents are still um, um, adjusting to the change of management. There is also a lot of building going on on the site. And so there's just a lot of changes happening. And sometimes just um, a stable, um, the same faces is, is um, 
is calming enough, but I'll see a question. Um, uh, so notwithstanding just the, uh, the issues where it may create uh, an environment where uh, people miss things. Yes. Um, uh, that doesn't mean, this is my interpretation of what you're sharing and what you shared, uh, Linda. My, my interpretation is that the policies are stated clearly in relationship to protocols related to vacancies, occupancies, and corresponding action to support those individuals uh, uh, that, that, need, that, that need support in one form or the other. Is that, is that correct in, based on these weekly meetings? Yes, and we do share, we've actually gone out um, with EBMC to do the vacant units, so we were a part of those conversations, also ensuring that the right things were being said. Um, we also went through every vacant unit and posted notices up saying this is a vacant unit, this is what the code is, you're violating um, this code by being in this unit. We have talked to people and talked to them about the dangers of being in a vacant apartment. So one-on-one, -on -one, we have gone through every single vacant apartment. It's also um, something that we're going to do again, just as the Housing Authority, go to all of those vacant apartments again, just to ensure that we're aware of what's going on, that the proper notices are being served, and that um, the people in those units know what services are being provided. Thank you. For, so, so in terms of um, uh, confusion uh, related to those policies, or um, in terms of the response to those policies, um, if, if there is, um, it's either uh, willful negligence or it's confusion that isn't followed up or clarified in relationship to not understanding uh, the rules, regulations, policies in relationship to vacancies, occupancy, and associated service response. Is that a fair way to, um, to qualify those communications? Yes, um, and from my um, communications, the people know that they're in a vacant apartment. They understand that they um, should not be there. And they, most of the time, are working on um, other alternatives. Mm -hmm. They know it's, it's dangerous. They know that the windows are boarded and different things. And so they are aware. And our goal is to help um, bridge the gap between the services, um, because sometimes that's what's needed. And um, in addition to those who might be uh, occupying those units, are the city's partners, contractors, whether it's through MoCD or another city partner um, or uh, another contractor serving another city department through those resources or through the housing authority, they are clearly aware and have been educated on what those rules, regulations, and protocols are as well, correct? They are, and they also go door-to-door -door with us. They have the same conversations. Our goal is that everyone is saying the same thing. And so when, they, when we're going door to door with the hot team, we actually, you know, when you're with people for a long, uh, for four or five hours at a time, you know, this is a lot of units, we all ended, end up talking the same language. And so they understand um, what's going on. It, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a task, though, because you're going into apartments where um, you're seeing the conditions of the apartment, even from the door. And so they're aware of those conditions, too. And, and they don't want to be there, and so we, it's our goal to be able to offer other alternatives. One of the things, you know, to be very frank, though, is that the city does not have a lot of rooms and shelters and things like that. Another thing to be 
transparent about is Please. people in our communities are not always willing to go to a shelter and shelters are not always safe for our children. And so while it is something that we're going to say, hey, go to this shelter, that is not something that people from my community are used to going to. We're used to going to someone's house, a, a friend, a cousin, uncle, something like that. And so when we're saying go to a shelter, that is not something that is um, really something that happens in our communities. Great, thank you, thank, thank you very much for that. Yes. Just to, um just to make sure that we're we're all kind of with the same information, I think it's often asked also why are there so many vacant units at these sites. Mm -hmm. So just a reminder to everybody who might be here, who might be listening in, th this is part of a redevelopment site, and we have talked to HUD about whether we can use these units for temporary use in other ways, and we have been told no, these are meant for permanent residency. As a result, as demolition has occurred, as redevelopment has occurred, the vacant unit number count has increased um, with no, no subsidy, no additional subsidy to mitigate what the situation is with the vacant units. And so you end up with what you see on your slide, I believe it's um, slide 20, better page 20, mm -hmm. where you do have a, a high vacant unit count and you actually can't fill those units with anybody uh, that's permanent. So. Just so, um, yeah. that's that, that that's very helpful. So you know, and th that's one of the questions that, that I'm raising here by looking at these uh, vacant units. I have some particular questions about them, but um, I know we have a lot to get through today, and I don't want to. Um, uh, I think these are some broader policy questions that the housing authority needs to have with the city, um, and I know we've already begun some of those um, uh, in relationship to uh, issues around vacant units. Uh, at these sites and given the rising numbers, et cetera, and the complications associated with them remaining online during this uh, construction period or development period, uh, which can be quite extended. But one of the questions I have just, just in terms of the numbers, yes. um, are these numbers meant to line up between Potrero Terrace, Annex, and Sunnydale? Are, are they supposed to equal that 943 number? The 647 plus the 7 plus the 327 should equal 943. Okay, great. So they're just to be, to be, they're just meant to be viewed as separate columns, not to be across. Great. Correct. Thank you. Thank you. Just want to ask a dumb question. <laughs> I might have a dumb answer. It's no, okay. no, 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 no. So I wanted to also share um, some of the collaboration that has been going on uh, with the partners in addition to the work with the vacant units. Um, we actually have been working with um, residents. We had abatements that we were challenged with that we were sh uh, reporting last time. Those abatement numbers have dropped. There's only two residents uh, um, at the end of this report that we still had um, because of the collaboration with with the CBOs. Just um, just one quick question. So the total units, when I look at uh, across across the row, 514, 429 yes, equals a 943, but then there's a 207 plus 98, and they're said to equal 327. There seems to be a little bit of uh, off number there around vacant units. I'll see if it's a rounding, if there was something in just the right, percentage yeah. of occupancy. Just because I know that, you know, as we're paying more attention to the specificity of these units, I think it's important for us to see those numbers uh, clearly, and I know, thank you. Um, as I was saying, the um, collaboration continues because what we've, we've actually, both for Sunnydale, we even collaborated with the teams where um, we had Mercy assist us with bringing totes and bags and um, items in to 11 of the units that, to um, help 
help organize the home a little bit more to allow us to get in and do the effective repairs and, and cure the deficiencies. And so um, that actually was um, tremendously helpful. And 11 of those remaining at Sunnydale abatements were all cured. It's down to one. Uh, the same type of collaboration was at Pertoro, where we had um, regular communication with the with the residents, trying to assist them um, to uh, take care of things with unattended dogs, uh, things of that nature, for us to be able to to get into the units. Um, and we were able to get that number down to one uh, at uh, uh, Petrero. And so now we just have, the only thing that's left is like I have a little bit of housekeeping. Um, as I was just told that there, um, we have key return receipts that we need to give to housing authorities so that they can take it out of their system. Uh, and that's the last of those, those um, um, items to be able to get those out of the housing authorities um, records as well. And in our last meeting, you had asked about the types of collaboration that was being within the community because of the systems that are in place. And, um, and I've given a couple examples. You had asked about what type of rental assistance, where are some of the um, agencies that are out there, could I possibly provide an accounting? Yes, I could, and I thought maybe you might just like a peek behind the curtain to see um, just within the last 60 days, these individuals, uh, these, these organizations were able to help individuals with their past due rental assistance, um, young community developers, city youth now, Catholic charities, even we received a COVID relief at, <laughs> um, funds for another resident. So those are the types of resources that we're seeing coming to assist the residents in their past due balances. On our next slide, I wanted to talk a little bit about our billing. Um, and we have, have seen a tremendous influx with our practices to collect the past due balances. As reported before, we send a, a letter every single Friday. They have a reminder letter. At the end of the month, by, uh, between the 25th and the 1st of the month, statements go out for the following month. This is where you are. This is what the check I've received the prior month. Here's what your past due balance. We would, if you have a balance, we need to entertain a repayment agree agreement with you. And so that that they receive mailed to their home. And I do that out of my corporate office so that I can ensure there's not a door missed, not posted delays, et cetera. So I know every one of those households receive it in the mail. In addition to that, that's what they do. They do have the follow-up with the every Friday, the um, um, courtesy notices that are sent to the households. And so um, what's also happened is we have, um, we are, more progress is being made with the past recertifications. So now we have the first annual HAP adjustments that are being received. And we are receiving this, uh, um, that would be for 2023 and the 24. And so we've actually are able to, in real time, are now a, a, um, up, updating our system with that information. We share th with the authority through a share file system. We download those. We're instantly able to enter them into our system, adjust the tenant's rent ledgers. Uh, if there's a concession for notice, a notice period, if uh, they needed a, 
uh, appropriate notice period of a rent change. That concession is put on so the tenant is not harmed. And so instantly those are being sent out and so the ledgers are being corrected at the same time. So that we're, we're, we've been able to um, refine that process so it's actually actually happening much more expeditiously than previously. And so we're really happy to, about that as well. Um, and as we've done this work with this collaborative work with the recertifications, we're now preparing the lease agreements and are going out and getting the phase one lease agreements with the language that's required uh, by, by with the HUD corrections that had asked for asked us for and everything that has received a HAP letter and everything that has a signed lease has already been provided to the Housing Authority um, and we're constantly following up on a daily basis with them on those as well and then to track those repayment agreements we actually created a different GL code so that we're reducing rent and increasing the tenant repayment GL code. So on the financial statements, the authority will be able to see on a monthly basis in real time the repayment payments that have been received by us as well. Any questions before I move on? None for me, commissioners. I sense a question brewing from Commissioner Kim. I actually have a, a, um, at the end of the presentation, I have sort of a bigger picture yeah, okay. please. question or concern. So I don't want to, uh, I don't know whether you want to just finish your presentation and then Thank I'll you. Yeah, let's move through and then cover it at the end. Does okay. that work? Great. Okay, great. So I have a billing trend that's there for you to be able to show um, what's been billed, what's been collected, the repayment agreements that have been collected, um, the percentage of rent collections, all of that trend there is now available for you. Um, and I had a problem with the pivot table because I was going to give you a chart, but uh, uh, so I'll even have a chart for you next time as well. I was able to get that um, overcome. So you'll have a chart that shows the graph uh, for next time as well. But I definitely wanted you to have the month over process to be able to determine that, um, the progress that's been made at the sites. And we can move on to the next slide. And wanted to, oops, my printout is a different page. Oh, thank you. Um, so I wanted to follow up with the January um, report showing the um, lease violations and the staffing. We started the eviction, so those are the numbers there that we started with the evictions. Many more have to be, I'm waiting until I get the proof of service back. So there's going to be a, a huge influx following the audit um, from after I get the process server information in the month of February. So and, you will and see then a just change. A, I'm sorry, I'm sorry to interrupt. I said, so you'll see a change. Okay, great. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, and the coordination, there is coordination taking place with housing authority, city partners around that eviction Absolutely. process. It, it would just be great to constantly, constantly hear that. Absolutely. Okay, great, thank you. One hundred percent. 
Uh, and so um, with regards to the office staff, I, um, as I mentioned, the new trainees were not in January. They will be in February. But I've given the positions and allocations of positions. So it shows the open positions of seven and nine currently. Um, we did hire a senior manager um, following um, Lentz Wittenberg's departure. Um, but we were having some onboarding issues, um, and I've already procured a replacement, and they start tomorrow. I need somebody that's going to be able to operate at a high level and make themselves um, bring up to speed to what's because it's a complex process. So I want to make sure I have the right person at the helm. Great, thank you. I wanted to share the work order numbers as well. Um, I've given you the lease execution numbers and I wanted to give you the work orders as well. Um, we have seen um, a, a peak in the total number of work orders. I did have um, in January, I know we were talking about the scorecards and where we are. I did have in January far too many incomplete open work orders and um, an incomplete reporting from that individual, which is why they're no longer with us. I need somebody to take responsibility. So you are going to see a spike of incomplete work orders in January, but my team's already back back um, on those um, to ensure that uh, they're assigned accordingly, taken care of, and closed out. Um, which is why you show the work orders not means meeting standard for Petrero is 81 as we closed out that month. Uh, I gave you the maximum days of completion, uh, 37.8 days. Some of um, three, I believe, were um, um, of, a, of a high nature, and one was an, um, an emergency nature that did not get closed out in 24 hours. But it was closed out. And I personally, even a couple of them, I personally myself and my new senior um, um, it, uh, Resident manager, excuse me, my new um, senior property supervisor called. I said, I want all of these calls, and it's not going to happen at the site. It's you and I, we're going to start making our quality calls and test, 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 and verify, right? Trust but verify. And that's exactly what we did on those work orders because those numbers were elevated. On the next slide, you are going to see the trend of the work orders. Um, so that you can see where those are month over month. A lot of them, uh, if you remember, are also unit inspections following the HQS. I have just today reminded uh, Sunnydale that I am asking them starting in March, I want us to do unit pre-HQS inspections. So they're going to start sending out advance notice of entry um, we're coming to double check if there's uh, self-reporting. If you would like to let me know this didn't get done and you haven't reported, now's your chance before I come and find it. So we can have good communication with the residents. We give them a little checklist and then we come. Remember that, that you shouldn't be blocking a window because of an ingress, egress problem. We're coming in within 10 days. Make sure that these deficiencies aren't in place so that we give them a um, uh, a primer 
to help them successfully pass our internal audits due. Educate, 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 right? Educate the residents, educate our staff, and um, do the follow-up. Um, before HQS comes. So that's starting in the month of March at Sunnydale, and I've got to double check when Petrero, um, I've asked them to also start it, but it is a big process uh, to do those. To the, um, so Sunnydale would be 100, is scheduled to be 100% complete by 331 for the, all of the phase one internal inspections for, for um, the, in, in advance of the HQS. And our next slide has our February initiatives. Um, these are the individuals that um, have the introduction, has been introduced and they have been introduced into the, um, with the CBOs and the staff. Um, another thing that we've done too is we have very large vendors that already have Vendor Shield. So to assist with and streamlining processes of bills, all of those are going, we're trying to get those large vendors to do them through Vendor Shield where they can upload them themselves because we're we are noting in general delays in mailing. Um, just, it could be anything and I don't want to have an interruption while we're waiting for a vendor to mail us a something, us to put it in the system, have to mail them back a check. So we're trying to narrow down that wait time of mailing and that's what Vendor Shield will do. And we, our other initiative is to continue, continue with that lease execution for the 2024 HAP change notices as they're received. And I will open to questions. Great, thank you, Commissioner Kim. Um, thank you. I don't, I don't have a specific question about any particular part of your presentation. As you are. As you were doing your presentation, I was looking through these slides. I was trying to sort of understand whether I or others had a clear understanding of why are you presenting what you're presenting? Like, what's the purpose? Uh, if I, if I, I'm not asking you, like, I know you're trying to answer, and I'm just asking okay. that you listen, right? Yes, ma'am. Um, because these are just different sort of thoughts that are going uh, through. Like, I'm thinking about what is the... Um, what is the contract or the purpose of EBMC? Like, why are you, um, uh, what are the main components? And just kind of thinking about, okay, well, looking at your presentation, uh, it appears, right? So if you're looking at um, the work that you are contracted to perform, it looks like from this, you are meeting with a number of stakeholders. There's something about billing and collecting vacancies, work orders, staffing, and leasing, right? Those are the major components. Um, but they seem, uh, but these things seem static to me and not necessarily connected to the overall monitoring of the contract, right? Like they're, they're, they're interesting points that you present, but I'm still trying to see how they, they connect overall to the work that we are doing in our role to ensure that um, we are meeting, meeting our um, our mission and our purpose, right through our role, and I just and I, I just wonder there continues to be issues that are that occur um, that are outside of these metrics. Um, there's a lot of information that you provide through narratives that don't seem consistently tracked. They they're anecdotal, 
and I just wonder whether it might be worth having some conversation or thought around um, ensuring that all the different areas that need to be monitored and, and um, are being captured in the reports in such a way that we have a clear picture of understanding what are the expectations and how are they being met. Mm -hmm. Less so in a narrative presentation, more sort of in the way in which you're collecting data and monitoring and ensuring it and helping us in our role to do that mm -hmm. as well. Um, Commissioner yeah. Kim, like, that, that, those are some of the questions I had as well. I mean, I, I know we talked um, before, and it's a collective conversation, right? I mean, mm -hmm. um, uh, when we talked before around report cards that the authority had put mm -hmm. together um, uh, and giving us a chance that w when, we're, when we're coming here, how are we moving towards that strategy? How is the contract helping to facilitate the end result or desires, objectives of that strategy? Along those lines is what you're... Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. I think that's really a conversation for the authority to have with you and with other contractors around how to reach those goals. Is that... Right, mm -hmm. yep. And how does that relate to an ultimate presentation here and what makes the most what makes the most sense for us to hear about. Right, so that it's less reliant on a narrative reacting to situations that are occurring and more sort of on how are we moving towards um, the objectives that have been defined. Okay, okay, no worries. The matrix that are on here are actually how this was derived, if it may give a little bit of insight, but we can, we can Happy to expound, but the reason I'm constantly reporting on those matrix because that is what was in the agreement. Those were the measures that were in the original RFP. So I'm making sure on a regular basis you have that. If you're finding it's redundant or if you would like to have it augmented, we can, we can work with the authority to make sure that those, those types of things are incorporated for you. Thank you. Yeah, no, no, no. I, I'm, I'm sure that there are main functions, right, because it makes... Um, it of course makes sense why you would be looking at these different components. It's still, I think it'd be helpful to work more on, well, what are the goals? How far are we from meeting these goals? Are we on target? Where are we not? Those different, those different things, which I know I'm sure the um, CEO can work with you on. Okay. In that monitoring piece. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Any thoughts on that, CEO? But as you, I mean, it's not a loaded question at all. It's not. Oh, no, I don't think it has a loaded question. <laughs> it, um, EBMC, like all the other contractors, they are correct. Those are the metrics within the contract. And what you're used to seeing also from us is a scorecard where we talk. And I think fundamentally, I think some of the things that really need to be said that aren't being said is what are some of the challenges which you were trying to get at today that you're experiencing on the site? What are some of the successes and how do all of these metrics fall into seeing that and addressing those challenges, getting to those successes and which ultimately help us to meet our mission and our goal which is stabilizing housing. And I think fundamentally, if we think about, in particular, the earlier dialogue around the vacant units that are vacant units that are not legally habitable, and what are those challenges? 
how are we addressing them, all the policy around them, how many are there, and how are we working with our city partners in that work, and what does that mean in the outcome of everything that we're doing? Along with, if you look at the chart around collection of rent, that's not a new chart to this body. It's just that the Housing Authority is not making that particular, um, having that particular presentation. And so then if you look at how are we successfully collecting, because the, the reality around our collections is we're no longer in public housing. We are in our Housing Choice Voucher Program, which means that every one of those units is a project-based voucher. And we're under a whole different set of rules with HUD. And at the same time, we're balancing how do we ensure that our families are stable, they stay housed, we're working with our services, we're working with Hope SF, meaning M-O-C-H-D, and at the same time, what is our collection rate? And when we're not collecting, how do we help residents ensure that their rent is being paid? Do we have, um, as they have shown, do, are we back in repayment agreement? Because all of those things are really important, and as we move forward in our next month, I will be talking about the impact of that to the organization, and I think part of what's missing is we're not presenting some of this data in the ways that we have in the past that connect us. So when Linda talks today about our strategic plan, and Commissioner Kim had made this request about our strategic plan, how are all of our goals, our mission and our vision goal statements being connected by all of the underlying work that is being done. And so I am committed to connecting all these pieces as we move along. They're sitting like this right now, and I know that, because um, I need time to continue to pull them together. But in our definitely April presentation, my goal, I'm committed to showing you how these things better dovetail together in all of the presentation and why they work together. So I, I hear what you're saying to me, and we'll be working on that. I actually was going to address that when Linda did the strategic plan. So I hear you, Commissioner Kim. I hear you, President Torres. And again, thank you to all of our um, partners who work with us in this work. Uh, if there's no additional commissioner's comment on item 9B, we go to item, item 9C, the finance report. This has been continued for a future meeting. Item 9D, this is the Chief Executive Officer's general communications with our CEO, Tanya Ledeju. Thank you, Bennett. I, I think fundamentally, President Torres, um, he did talk about Black History Month, and we had our Chinese New Year um, festival parade, which I was um, highly honored to ride with him this year. And there were scores of individuals, families, 
um, individuals at the parade this year. It was amazing to see it, not at the stage. I've, for the last couple of years, I've actually been on the stage with Commissioner Kim and other colleagues in the city. And this year I rode through the streets of San Francisco and it was just absolutely a joy and a wonderful opportunity to be with President um, Torres during that event. And, you know, Black History Month as well as Lunar New Year they all are very important and I think a sentiment that was stated today is how we really come together as a community regardless of what we're celebrating that we see ourselves as jointly fitted together as we continue to move forward in this community as a as constituents of the city and county of San Francisco as members of this great city. So both of the um, this month and Lunar New Year are really important times in the histories of each of our cultures. And so it's always a wonderful time to participate on both sides of the um, event. So thank you for that. And um, also, what I would like to say about our Lunar New Year, it is the year of the dragon. And um, the great thing about that is the spirit of the dragon is powerful, it's energetic, and it's goal-oriented and visionary. And so that is what I hope to be continue to be in this seat along with all of you as we continue to transform the housing authority because we are definitely a great partner to our mayor and to the city family in housing individuals in the city. And it is our goal as we move forward in this year that the housing authority continues to transform in a way that we can see more individuals housed um, in high resource areas throughout our city and that we continue to be able to put project-based vouchers, if you will, into new developments that the city is building, as well as take advantage of creating new programs within our housing line that allow other individuals and folks um, with special needs, um, having different um, experiences within the community where they've been just as involved, domestic violence, violence period, that we are able to have a hand in housing these individuals as we continue to move forward in this year. So thank you all again to my staff for the committed work that you do every day for being committed to this work. Thank you to this board for being committed to us, to this work, and asking the insightful questions to help us get to the place that we want to be as a high-functioning organization in the city. With that, I'm completed with my presentation. Uh, thank you, CEO, that is you. Is there any public comments on the entirety of the Chief Executive Officer reports? Hi, I'd like to comment and thank you guys for the reports, uh, especially the John Stewart report, because I'm in a John Stewart building, and what he inspired in me is the collaboration. So my vision is the tenant associations that they represent, and although they're family and not seniors and disabled, there's a way that our buildings can learn from each other and unite our voices that make them stronger instead of uh, unified. So 
just to quickly recap some of the things that we do. Food distribution, agency referrals, advocacy between management, tenant and resident services, open communications at all those levels, train the officers, work towards better living conditions. So the tenant associations are they better living conditions. Promote unity in the community, welcome new tenants orientation, financial oversight of the tenant associations, and conflict resolution. That's the real big one. So I would like to ask the commissioners, if I may formally present a proposal to you, if I was to put this on uh, my vision on paper, if I could present that proposal to you. Yeah, absolutely. And then you can also, during the Citywide Council on Seniors and Disabled, make use of the time there as well. Yes, I meant for uh, the resident council committee that I'd like to. Yes, yeah, certainly. For you guys. Absolutely. So, okay, thank you very much. So, if you work with Bennett, Bennett can. Ben, um, I'll ensure that Bennett contacts you. And as I committed, I'm more than happy. Also, not only during this time, but to set up a reoccurring me meeting with you. So um, let. Bennett know if that's something that you would like to do and it's I'm perfect. more than happy for myself and my staff to do that. Thank you very It'll much and on a side note I'd like to answer your uh, occupancy question a little bit. The National Association of uh, Redevelopment, NARO, has recently reported that there's a fine associated with the builders that don't uh, put the tenant occupancy turnover a little quicker. So I just wanted you to be aware that there might actually be a new law coming into effect for that. Any additional public comment on item number nine? Yeah, I just want uh, a happy uh, Black History Month and Chinese New Year again, Greg Richardson. The one thing I really liked about Ed Lee and Willie Brown when I heard some of the tenants talk about there was a resident management part of the Public Housing Merchants Association. Now, in their vision, what they saw was Section 3, for instance, training residents in the real estate school to partner up at City College and get the necessary credentials to start and be trained by such a resident management company that may have the contracts now. Now Martin Luther King Jr., we marched down the street and we all understand what he meant when he talked to President Kennedy about the military housing project, when he was talking to the garbage man down in Memphis, where he was talking to 1021 and the nurses. What he said, what we're working towards, and what I've always believed in, was that public housing residents have a self-supporting system by itself, alone, that could take care of the entire population because it's a national program. So when you look at HOPE 6 or you look at any of these particular, there hasn't been any advancement in the contract opportunities where becoming a general contractor whether you can get the nourishment and training that you need. So when you have resident problems, you have residents that have already been through programs 
that can easily talk to other residents and move things forward. So it's good to see who you know with you. So happy Black History Month, and hopefully Jean, the dream of King can survive through you. Any other public comment for item number nine? Then we can close public comment and go to item number 10. This is the committee report. Commissioner Linda, would you like to report out on last week's committee meeting of February 21st? Sure. Uh, the committee of two, Luana and I, we met uh, last week. And there were a number of things that were discussed in committee. Uh, and I'll just roll off a few of them here. Uh, we discussed the additional 125 project-based vouchers that the authority has received and how they'll be dispersed. We also talked about the uh, Wui Child Children's Care Center over on Kirkwood Street and how they've been extended for another three years. We also talked about the, a new consulting firm as Things didn't work out with the one that had been here for a number of years, and now we're wetting our beak with the new one, see how they do. In addition to that, we talked about the EBMC management company, and they were awarded a one-year additional contract. The procurement policy, which was presented to us uh, at length, good job back there. And the presentation by Mamadou regarding investment strategies for the authority. And lastly, Linda with the personnel policies. And Ted. Uh, thank you very much, Commissioner Lindo. Is there any public comment on item number 10? Then we can close public comment and go to item number 11 for the consent items. I will just list up all the consent items and the commissioners can decide if there's any items they'd like to pull for further discussion. Starting off with item 11A, this is the approval of the commission meeting minutes of November 29th, 2023. 11B, the approval of the commission special meeting minutes of February 8th, 2024. Item 11C, this is the resolution approving and authorizing the chief executive officer to select and, and enter into a housing assistant payment contract and where necessary an agreement to enter into a project-based voucher HAP contract for the following developments, Mercy Family Plaza, 1100 Ocean Ave, Coleridge Park Homes, Mosaica Senior, The Coronet, Juan Pifier Plaza, Good Samaritan Apartments, Del Carlo Court, Rich Charlo Commons for a total not to exceed 125 project-based vouchers. Item 11D, this is the resolution approving and authorizing the chief executive officer to amend the license agreement entered into between Wu Yi Child Care Services located at 729 Kirkwood and the Housing Authority of the City and County of San Francisco to extend the term of the license agreement by an additional three years ending October 31st, 2027. And item 11E, the resolution approving and authorizing the chief executive officer to enter 
into a three-year contract with CSG Advisors, Inc. to provide consulting and financial services for a total contract amount not to exceed $600,000. With that said, is there any items that okay. the commission would like Prior to pull for further discussion? Okay. Yes, maybe go ahead. That we can ask for a motion to approve the consent agenda, including items 11A, B, C, D, and so E. And a second. I second. Roll call vote. President Torres. Aye. Commissioner Lindo. Aye. Commissioner Kim. Aye. And Commissioner Pikes. So moved. Thank you. Moving right along. That was good. <laughs> uh, item 12. This is the regular business action items, starting off with 12A. Resolution approving and authorizing the Chief Executive Officer of the Housing Authority of the City and County of San Francisco to enter into Amendment Number 1 to Contract 0029-20 between the Authority and Eugene Bergen Manager Corporation for the management of the Sunnydale, Velasco, and Petrero housing projects to extend the term of the contract for an additional one year and one month through January 31st, 2025, presented by Linda Mason, our General Counsel. Commissioners. This is a, a request to extend the existing Eugene Burger Management contract by one year. Um, just a reminder on the chronology that is on your page 204 in the book. This began as an RFP that was issued in, a, in response to a HUD mandate to contract out the property management at Petro and Sunnydale in 2020. Uh, if you look at the date, February 6th to February 25th is when the uh, emergency order was issued for COVID-19. And then March 16th, the shelter in place was ordered. So between the beginning of the RFP process and then the actual award, award which was September 24, 2020, there was actually no transition of the property management. And the contract management, even though the contract was executed October 1st, 2020, the services didn't actually begin until February 1st, 2022. So um, in looking at the contract this year to do the annual review, um, this first year of EBMC, we identified that what, is, what was listed as December 31st, 2024 should have actually been December 31st, 2023. And as a result, we wanted to come back to the commission, be fully transparent, and ask for an additional year since that appears to have been an error. The three years from the date of the contract was actually um, expired, I should say, on December 31st, 2022. So there is no financial obligation. There's no additional um, funds being placed into this contract. We really are being transparent, coming back and saying we need an additional year. EBMC is already on the ground. They're already working. Um, and at this point, we, we are asking to extend until January 31st, 2025. Commissioners, any questions about this item? No? No. no? Um, uh, you sure? Yes, we had discussion about this at our um, committee meeting as well. Any, um, uh, any highlight? I believe we've covered them all. Thank you. All right, great. Thanks. Um, uh, and, and then in terms of just, uh, in terms of transparency, um, can you just talk about um, when issues like this come up that are very um, uh, ministerial in nature, administrative in nature, or the, the corrections, um, uh, are there other methods in which approvals like these could take place? I would start by saying these are not common, um, something like this. We, I actually haven't seen it in my years at the Housing Authority. Okay, all right. So uh, the, the reason we do want to be transparent, and I think we always try to be transparent, in all honesty, we could have actually gone back to the CEO and just extended the contract on our own without coming to the commission. 
but we wanted to ensure that the public was aware, that the commission was aware that this was being requested. We wanted to be clear that there's no additional finances that are being placed into this contract. And we also wanted to be clear that we, ha we have an obligation to our residents that our residents know what's happening and that why it's happening. So in this case, the amendment is being made uh, because it's we, we at this point must uh, amend. We don't have, um, we have, sir, we have uh, the property management on the ground. They're already doing the work. This came to our attention in late December, and we're in mid-February. So well, it I, just I, makes sense. Yeah, I, I very much appreciate you bringing this to the commission. I very much appreciate the transparency with regards to making corrections to contracts that exist um, and amending some errors there. So thank you very much for bringing that to us. Yeah, and, and again, thank you to the committee for taking this up there as well and having some substantive conversation there. Uh, very much appreciate it to the chair, through the chair of the committee, to the member of the committee, through the chair of the committee. <laughs> um, thank you, okay. Any public comment on this item? All right, and of course, we look forward to continued conversations with EBMC around uh, uh, performance metrics uh, in collaboration with us, so thank you. Um, do we have, uh, are we taking roll? Uh, motion to approve. So moved. And a second. I second. Roll call vote. President Torres? Aye. Commissioner Lindo? Aye. Commissioner Kim? Aye. Commissioner Pikes? Aye. So moved. Thank you. Item 12B. This is the resolution approving amendments to the Housing Authority of the City and County of San Francisco's procurement policy presented by Zawadi Longay, our Housing, housing Authority attorney. On time, no C. <laughs> Uh, hello, commissioners. Yes, so this policy was presented at committee at length. I will endeavor to be less uh, verbose. Okay, so the staff is recommending approval of the revisions made to the authority's procurement policy. Uh, the current policy was adopted through two resolutions, sections one through three in January 11th of uh, 2001 through resolution number 4955, and sections four through 11 on August 1st, 2001 through resolution number 4992. And over the last year, the entire policy was reviewed section by section, culminating in my attendance at a one-week procurement conference wherein HUD's key procurement consultant hosted and provided updates on the entire uh, Code of Federal Regulations governing procurement, and as well as the um, HUD handbook uh, on those regulations. Um, further revisions were made to the policy after our return from the conference, and what is presented to you today is uh, necessary to ensure the adherence of authority staff to HUD's procurement rules. Um, <clears throat> so, the suggested revisions will strengthen the authority policy, ensure that the a policy aligns with industry best practice, and it will clarify the requirements um, of the policy, as well as align it with the authority's transitioned role as contract administrators. Um, after presenting to committee last week, the slide before you was created to provide clarity on exactly which sections of the procurement policy were revised. So, so this is the, um, the table of contents uh, of the current policy. The main revisions or um, added language were just to the f first five sections primarily, and the remaining sections did not receive um, very much 
weren't really touched at all. And all current and revised language is in the revision matrix that is uh, included in your book. Okay, next slide. This slide is an example of the sort of non-substantive changes that one may see throughout the policy. Uh, so this is a change to the preface, which is the first section that was revised. And you can see here that the new language doesn't change what the current language is saying. And in fact, it incorporates the current language while enhancing it. Um, so the additional language that was added to it strengthens the section, strengthens what it's meant to convey, um, and it also takes information that was placed elsewhere in the policy and brings it, um, places it in a position where it makes the most sense given the surrounding information. So in the current policy that 1.2 wasn't there, it was kind of somewhere else lower down in the policy and it was brought up because it just makes sense holistically. So those are the sort of changes that was made throughout um, the policy. These changes were meant to, so they include clear headings, enhanced descriptions, and then that formatting changing uh, with, the, with the section headings and, and numbers for easy cross-referenceability between um, our procurement policy procedures and any training materials that we should do for our staff. Okay. This current section over for general provisions is just to illustrate that two new sections were added to the general provisions uh, chapter of the policy. And so these are sections that were not included in the current policy. They don't exist currently in the current policy in the current policy, so they're just revised. And that's the exclusion section and the definition section. So the exclusion is from the HUD handbook. Um, and so it was added just as a best practice um, sort of addition. And the definitions section we added where currently we define eight terms that's used in the policy, provides um, the information that you need to understand um, certain concepts. And having this policy would just aid us in the future should we ever have any other rules that we need to abide by. Um, and that has particular terminology that needs to be defined, we'll now have a section where we could put that. Next slide. Oh. Um, under procurement authority and administration, only two new sections were added there. We added um, procurement planning and funding availability. The procurement planning section is added as a best practice addition to the policy. Um, Commissioner Kim requested that the com at the committee meeting that a procurement report, she would like to see a procurement report out. Oh, that's great. Um, that we will be working on for future meetings. And procurement planning would allow for ease in reporting, but also more importantly, to plan ahead for authority needs, ensure we have the capacity to prepare, issue, and negotiate contracts, plan ahead to determine next steps for existing contracts like amendments, terminations, whether we need to re-procure, things of that nature, um, and to make sure that we have the budget for all of these needs. The funding availability section was added to aid in the expansion of the um, centralized procurement section where we explain our procurement process from initiation to contract administration and that is not something that we currently do in the policy. We just had kind of a short 
synopsis that we have a centralized procurement and in the revised policy, we actually explain um, the, the policy from start to finish or the centralized procurement from start to finish. Okay. The next slide um, under procurement methods, this slide reflects the revisions um, to section five procurement methods. It adds section 5.1 competition. Um, it adds section 5.2.4 credit and purchasing cards. Um, and since presenting to the De Development and Finance Committee, I've also added, this was not in my slide or my pre presentation before, this came about as, because of a conversation with Commissioner Kim during that um, presentation. We, I added section 5.3 entitled um, order and bid splitting. Mm -hmm. um, so these sections are new additions um, that we bring to the policy to align our current practice in the law. So it's not that we didn't know this rule, we all knew it, so it's just like, and we've been practicing that, but it was never really clearly stated in the policy, so we're now clearly stating, uh, once you get past all the small purchase um, procedures that, hey, you're not allowed to split orders up just to avoid coming to commission or avoid you know, any procurement rules, so we just clearly state it. So we have a hay provision. A what? A hay provision. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. So we all knew it, but it's, it's there now, so we're good. Okay. I believe, that Diane, advised that many, I believe Diane advised that many years ago that there should yeah. be a hay now provision oh, uh, yes. in many of our procurement and other documents. Okay. <laughs> now, this is... <laughs> I just want to make sure everyone's listening. <laughs> okay. Um, Non-competitive procurement methods. The non-competitive procurement methods is a section that we believe merited more attention since last week's committee meeting due to the discussions that was raised um, surrounding these changes. Um, and because HUD has in recent years focused particularly in this area uh, for compliance as well as um, corruption. The non-competitive procurement methods section has been aligned to mirror uh, the Code of Federal Regulations 200.320C, which includes uh, micro-purchases, sole source, emergency, HUD authorization, and inadequate competition as the only five circumstances under which you can do a non-competitive procurement. Um, our current policy only lists four. It doesn't list micro-purchase as one. So we have just completely aligned it with all of the five reasons under the Code of Federal Reg Regulations. And then if you move to the next slide, so that part's not alarming. None of this is really alarming, but. Um, so this next slide for clarity, hopefully for you, uh, Commissioner Kim, is where we're attempting to show um, the differences. So in our current policy, anything that we procure under the non-competitive procurement methods has to be accompanied by a written justification. So the chart is meant to show all five of the reasons, the only five reasons you can do anything non-competitively, they, uh, I think the, the slide right before. The previous slide yes, the had previous. the charts that you want to see. Yes, yes. 
So you'll be able to see that all of the five reasons do have to have the written justifications. Okay, uh, now. It just, it, uh, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. Please, please. The other, okay. The other part of our policy, and this is just strictly SFHA policy, is that the written justifications are all supposed to be presented to the board for approval um, and in, the, in their resolution package. And so what the authority is asking in our revisions, we're asking for micro-purchases and for the sole sources within the CEO's um, authorization threshold to be the only two instances where the CEO can approve the justification and it does not have to come to the board for a resolution. Right. Now, uh, may I uh, ask yes. a question here? Thank you. So um, when did we, so it, there used to be a, uh, a lower threshold for approval at commission, correct? Below $100,000, correct? Correct. How, and that was $50,000 or was it even less than that? 30. It was 30. And we made that $70,000 adjustment again under what justification, just to remind, and the board voted on, uh, on increasing that threshold, correct? Correct. Yes. Um, uh, and can you just remind, uh, can you, re oh, uh oh, wait, am I asking the right, okay. Can you remind us um, uh, what, what our justification was for increasing that threshold? And, and I'm, I'm just uh, setting the table for making these changes. Uh, um, uh, and just as a, uh, to forecast where I'm going is that I just want to have a, a, a conversation of in the environment that we're in now, where there are more issues of malfeasance and corruption that are being highlighted in the city, mm -hmm. Um, uh, albeit again, these are limited actors. Um, however, they're being augmented in, in a way that should be of concern to the city and we should address them seriously. Mm -hmm. um, I just wanna make sure that uh, at, for the record, we are discussing the controls in which we made changes, the justification for making those changes, and also just very frankly, CEO letters you, making sure that you're protected um, uh, and that you feel comfortable from a system perspective around the changes that we are pursuing with regards to procurement. The reason uh, as such, and my memory is going to fail me, mm -hmm. but generally the reason as such is because when I first came onto this commission 11 years ago, <laughs> um, uh, it was, uh, and I serve with joy, um, uh, <laughs> I, I do, um, the, one of the issues at that time were the allegations in relationship to improper procurement decisions uh, that were made and highlighted as part of investigations into the authority. Mm -hmm. So the, the reason I just wanted to be able to kind of talk about and set the frame is that we have done quite a lot of work to ensure that the contracting process uh, has integrity, um, that the rulemaking around uh, said decisions is clear per your comments, and I very much appreciate you making uh, those very clear, you know, for mm -hmm. uh, shorthand, the hey now provision. Yes. Um, uh, uh, to, to ensure that uh, issues like uh, lack of planning, 
or poor planning or not justification mm -hmm. for a sole source procurement. I just want to make sure that we're that we're framing those issues appropriately. I know that we are, and that's why we've had this conversation both in committee mm -hmm. uh, at the time, 11 years ago, non-existent or non-active committees, but now active um, uh, in terms of making these decisions and deliberating them. I, I just want to make sure we have that on the record in terms of the integrity and structure of these changes that we've pursued, mm -hmm. uh, increasing thresholds for approval, because I think that, uh, again, uh, these are sound decisions mm -hmm. that are based in very seasoned rationale to include efficiencies for the authority while also ensuring you, the authority, have protections necessary that are voted on by this commission. Yeah. So just to, I'm, I'm, looking, I'm trying to fly up my memory as well. <laughs> but I think what happened was, um, you know, at a certain point, there was controls that were put in in terms of a threshold that was very low. I think it was like $30,000. And then as part of the transition team, I think when uh, um, Commissioner, I mean, not Commissioner, but Chief Executive uh, Tanya Lettersu came over with her team, uh, they kind of looked at, you know, they were looking at, really looking at many of the internal structures of what's going on with the housing authority and looked at other similar situated housing authorities. And then based upon that, that was kind of the basis for recommending the 100,000 threshold. Uh, in addition, even though there's a hundred thousand threshold, you know, as um, Swati Ling is basically presenting, procurement is also subject to HUD regulations. So even though you have a hundred thousand threshold, there also uh, the chief executive officer in this uh, case, uh, Tanya Lettergeu, is also considered the contracting officer under the procurement standards. And as such, she has to comply with the provisions in the procurement code that says you have to have certain kind of justifications, even though she may not have to come to the board for the 100000 When HUD does this audit, you still have to have a record that you have met the requirements under the, the regulation. So we have regulations. We have the, the, the San Francisco policy, but we also have the federal procurement standards, and we also have the state of California procurement standard because we are a state agency. So you have these three set of regulations that are you're being subjected to. So I think that those internal controls are not just in our policy, but they are statutorily mandated. Now, uh, those existed in the past as well. Mm -hmm. Well, no. This well, in terms the of HUD, the the HUD provisions, no, and the they, state provisions. Well, what happened was, I found like a comedian. But anyway, <laughs> in 2014, <laughs> yeah. there was an entire change of the whole procurement standard. So that was a major change. Not only did it affect um, HUD, it affected every federal agency. So that so there is a major difference. So many of the, unfortunately, even. The HUD guidelines that we are using now that Swati just referred to is still the 2008 version. They have not updated that, even though the procurement regulations were adopted in 2014. Right. Uh, and so we're using our best practices. So the federal standard that was adopted in 2014 has many more uh, internal controls based on statute that was not present when you first started. Right, thank you. That's, so that's the change. So there is a change, and I think um, some one of the um, issues is that many of the housing authorities 
have been left to come up best practices, and I think the consultant that um, Mrs. Ling was referring to is one of the leaders in coming up with that because HUD has not published their guideline yet. And so, so we are trying to um, really implement um, some of the provisions in the procurement of the 2014 that were not covered, I mean, that were covered in 2008, but they're not covered in 2014. Uh, and so the industry with Norrell and the uh, uh, legal uh, counsel for housing authorities have basically adopted best standards right now until with the hope that HUD is eventually going to adopt a guideline. But notwithstanding that, it is the statute that governs the standards for procurement, even without the guide. The guidelines are not statute, but the statute, which um, Mrs. Lang is referring to, is what governs procurement. Mm -hmm. Now, without, um, without <coughs> wanting to add additional burden um, or to negate any of the efficiencies gained by increased thresholds um, that are protected or shaped or guided by state or um, uh, uh, additional procurement regulations as adopted by the federal government. Um, uh, for transparency's sake, for visibility's sake, is there a way, even though it wouldn't require formal approval um, for any given month, should this body get an update on, um, uh, uh, on those um, uh, approvals that the CEO is making? I mean, I think that's the discretion of the um, CEO. Mm -hmm. uh, and also this board, I mean, I think that is something that is definitely within your purview to uh, request that Yeah, report. I, I, and again, uh, CEO letters, you, you know, the, the reason I want to ask this, the reason I want to ask this question is that um, to protect the integrity of the process um, uh, for whoever's going to be sitting in these seats, uh, the, the question is, would it be worthwhile from an integrity standpoint that even though it would not require um, uh, any approval from this body, just for us to know what decisions are being made about those items that are underneath the threshold that will require decision making um, uh, by this body? Is that something that makes sense for us, especially just given this environment? Now, it, it may not be because you can tell us for a policy conversation to have around, um, listen board, uh, or hey now board, <laughs> um, uh, uh, you know, the efficiencies gained um, uh, there are internal controls that you deem to be sufficient with regards to the discretion allowed to you, allowed by law and statute, to make those decisions under $100,000, let, let, let's say. But at the same time, I have no problem bringing those to you uh, as an authority just to, so that you are aware of that. Now, again, I'm looking at you, Mamadou, as well. Like, uh, I don't want to overburden an agency that is seeking to perform at a higher level. But at the same time, I just have this question of, for transparency's sake, does it make sense for us to at least to know about those decisions that are being made? I, I, I'm asking this body. Does so I think, it's a, it, oh. I think it's a fair question. Um, there's a lot of balance in that from my perspective yeah. as if I put on my auditor hat, if I put on my CEO hat, yeah. and being able to do business on a day-to-day -day basis. Because if I look at benchmarking, even the city, what a city department head has the authority to do without going to the board of supervisors yeah, right. or so forth and on we're well within our threshold and there is the responsibility of a head of an organization to have appropriate internal controls um, train staff and understand how you're spending money and if i operate within that construct 
I'm fine and I have no problem from a transparent perspective to say in this quarter, here are the transactions that under my preview of $100,000 that I've approved is, you know, I'm just ask. I don't have a problem with us doing that. However, I don't want to have to wait from a business perspective month to month to no, bring no, no. forward <coughs> what we're <coughs> intending to approve under that $100,000 threshold. How, how often would, um, uh, as part of our own audit processes or as part of a federal HUD audit process, how, how often would that take place in terms of those discretionary decisions allowed underneath the threshold? Because you, so, so for example, um, uh, say, uh, say this body had a lot of concern about discretionary decisions underneath the threshold um, uh, uh, because of past practices or public concern around decision making around procurement. Um, if, uh, if the body can say the, uh, the regulations provide for those discretionary actions to be taken, um, those actions have to be audited regardless by the federal government, and should there be any issues, the documentation is going to be there, must be there. The written uh, documentation is there because it, it rides with you, right? Um, uh, and those are discretionary actions allowed by you. Then that's a decision this body can make, and we can say we feel comfortable with that, and there might be certain updates that are provided around the total accumulation of those decisions. It's just a question, it's just a question that I have in this environment that we're in right now in particular, that, that I think I, is a question to be asked. If I might, I mean, we had a robust conversation during uh, the committee regarding micro-purchases and how they sort of, um, and the justification required. And so we did ask, um, uh, we did ask for quarterly reports okay. regarding uh, the micro-purchases and the sole source, right. not I, really I, I, as I, a... I just should have asked if there were quarterly reports or anything else asked, and that would have answered the question. Sorry. <laughs> no, no worries. But, I mean, it was... I think it's just not really on doing a double layer of approval because we don't want to slow anything no, up. All. But it's just simply kind of having an understanding of the micro-purchases and the sole source so that they don't potentially unintentionally add up. I know that's that's absolutely not the intention. It would not happen. But it's, it's just a... Um, as you know, I, I enjoy reports and sort of looking at them. And so we did ask for them on a quarterly basis. I believe it was quarterly, right? Yep. Yeah. 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 So yeah, definitely we can provide on a quarterly basis a summary of our spending uh, by categories because we do transact a lot daily. Yeah. Especially for the micro-purchase, that's anywhere from like up to 10,000. So we do have a lot of those transactions daily. So we can provide a summary on a quarterly basis. And for the audit, this Procurement is also part of the scope for uh, MGO, our independent CPA. So every year during the financial statement audit, they do um, a sampling of all our transactions, even the small purchase, and that's part of the audit. And we haven't had any findings. So that's also one way um, you can get some comfort over the you know, procurement process. Great. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. I Just from my recollection to President Torres, I don't believe that there were any findings when you came on on that initial um, procurement complaint. Um, and I don't believe up till now we haven't had any procurement findings at all in all the years that you have been on the on the commission. And that's the kind of uh, response we want when we ask that question, right? Well, <laughs> we, we, we want to stay there, right? Yeah. And so that's why we took the time to revise the procurement policy. Um, Zawadi had a training for staff uh, on Monday so that the staff was aware of this policy. Mm -hmm. And we plan to continue to be diligent in this area.
And then I will say, um, <clears throat> on the section about the uh, justifications uh, and the approvals, we did change slightly from when we spoke about it last. So we're asking for the CEO to be able to approve the non-competitive justifications for micro-purchases, and we changed it to say in sole purchases under $100,000. Originally, we said just sole purchases in general, but just the way our policy works, we bring everything over $100,000 to you all anyway, so you would always see sole purchases over 100000 So really, we're only specifically asking to just honor the CEOs. Um, you've already given her authority to, um, to award contracts under $100,000 so that it should not be different for approving the, um, the non-competitive proposals under that threshold for those two, for those two instances. Now, for emergencies and all that, we, we could do emergency spending that's under that threshold and that would still have to come to the board. So we're really only talking about those two instances that are pretty much always um, procured non-competitively because of the nature of it. If the CFRs, you only have to solicit one for micro-purchases and a sole source, obviously there's only one source. So they're always procured non-competitively and to have to come to the board every month would be cumbersome when they're meant to go a little bit faster. So that's why we're not trying to change all five categories, just those two. And if I might add on a sole source, um, again, those all documentation needs to be there. And being a city employee who fully understands documentation and in particularly having to justify a sole source, it's really important to me because we do have a responsibility to ensure that we do competitive bidding. And it is true there are times where a sole source is needed um, for particular reasons. As an example, there are times where, I'll just use this as an example, you may be having someone come in and they are reviewing a particular process that an organization is having and they have that specialization to do so, but you don't want a consultant necessarily doing that work and giving you the findings or the recommendations and having the ability to come in and actually do that work. So it is very important because that provides an internal control of a protection around someone telling me, oh, you need to do X, Y, and Z, yet, and I can do that for you. Well, okay, you've done the evaluation work, you've provided me with the recommendations, now I wanna find someone who could actually do the implement, help me with that implementation. So there are reasons why at times there, you have sole sources because there's a particular skill set that is needed to get the work done. And so from my perspective, when I look at procurement and anything that we do in the agency, we really are looking to ensure that we have internal controls in place because just as you said earlier, those controls also protect me as the CEO. And I'm interested in being protected because I'm part of the asset of an organization like each and every one of the staff. We, we all are an asset to the organization and we wanna have the right internal controls in place so that we're protecting our staff along with ensuring that our vendor, we're procuring 
appropriately and we have the right vendors and we have done it in a very transparent way that follows the correct rules and regulations that um, we need to operate in. And if we find that there's absence of a particular internal control or rule, if you will, in one system, we have other ways through benchmarking, through looking at the city and others like ourselves to come up with a process that keeps us all safe. Because also our goal is to protect our board and our families that we serve or individuals that we serve because these are public dollars. Thank you so much, uh, CEO Lejeune. Um I, I don't want to belabor the conversation that's already taken place at committee, even though I already have. Um, uh, but, but I also, you know, we're in a very particular situation where I want to make sure that the authority is swayed by the expertise of the particular individual who happens to have been the chief auditor for the city um, as we're making these types of decisions. Um, because we're so lucky to have you in this role today, but that may not always be the case um, uh, in 50 years. Um, and uh, and so and so I just want to and so I just want to be I just want to be certain that um, just from my personal perspective, I know it's already been discussed that those controls are in place and that they're uh, in the best interests of uh, a highly efficient, highly secure, highly compliant. Um, uh, organization. I know you have your eye towards that, but I'm just raising the questions in that matter. So thank you very much. No, and I appreciate that. And the goal is that when we are talking about the transformation of the agency, that we are putting internal controls that outlive me, that put controls around me or whoever sits in the seat. Right. So that's really important. So if I just, so uh, um, one question is, no, I do appreciate the conversation. And um, in addition to everything that both of you have said, which I wholeheartedly agree, I also would just like to highlight, which I know everyone agrees, is it's not a, I think these asks are not a demonstration or an ask of trust or lack of trust, but it's about good governance, just to ensure that we have the, um, the, the various sort of understanding of role. Just a quick question on your chart, which I really appreciate and like. Oh, no problem. Um, under, on the left side, it says any purchase under 10000 and then it's a CEO less than 100000 So um, is a micro-purchase, does a micro-purchase have to be under 10000 Correct. Yes, the procurement so threshold. How does that come up with 100000 So the procurement threshold uh, for a micro-purchase is anything under 10000 The 100000 is the CEO's authorization threshold. So she already normally, um, nothing that we procure that's under the micro-purchase threshold is something that ever comes to the board because it's already under the, the CEO can authorize it and do the contract without us presenting it. Usually, we only present our procurements that are over um, $100,000. So the numbers underneath the entities are your um, authorization thresholds. HUD only wants us to tell them if we are doing anything non-competitively that's over $250,000. Otherwise, we don't go to them for approval, we would come to you all for approval. And we're saying, unless, okay. This commission has been really very conservative in terms of anything that's, any sole source, they have actually gone and got HUS approval, even though they're not required to do it by statute. Right oh. now, the threshold is, is anything over 250 requires HUS approval. 
but this this body has always gone and got HUD approved for anything that's sole source. The hundred thousand dollar K and the Michael purchase, those are two separate things. The hundred thousand K is the the housing authority's policy okay. giving authority to commission. The other definitions are statute. So that's so basically it's a subset. A subset of anything under a hundred thousand has to meet HUD requirements but don't have to be approved by the board, but they still have to meet the HUD requirements. Anything under over 100,000 still have to meet HUD requirements and they come to the board. So it's almost like a subset of things happening at the same time. Okay. And, Extra layer protection. Yeah, and, yeah, and HUD does, I mean, they do do internal controls and they will look at the recommendations and the documentation. And so, um, you know, I think that even, you know, after, uh, I mean, um, CEO Lettergy is not here. Those controls are there, and I think that is one. In 2070. Yeah, <laughs> this is one area of the of the statute that HUD takes very seriously, uh, and so I do think that those controls are there, notwithstanding who is at the podium or who has the position. Yeah. Okay. And Commissioner right. President Torres, and I, I just want to say this because I think it's important. Exactly what. You, We've all said all of the different things that are going on um, in the city, but not just in the city, but we see it nationally as well around procurement issues. And I really am grateful because this team takes it very serious. And I, and I know you know that, but I want to say that on public record. We take procurement extremely serious. We understand the pitfalls that can occur with um, procurement. And um, even when we're doing sole source or we're doing our big contracts, we really check in with HUD because we don't want to miss a step before we even come to you about what we're doing. And even under my $100,000, depending on what it is, we're talking, we'll, we'll do a check-in sometimes on certain things. Because again, we just want to make sure we are chalking that line okay. as we move forward. And it is a part of our practice. And um, so I think as you have knowledge transferred within the organization, this is how the organization is growing up. And these things are very important. We're not interested in being in the news for not doing <laughs> things appropriately with the funds that have been entrusted to us for our residents. So thank you for um, the dialogue. I think this dialogue is healthy and it's really important. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, so we definitely, uh, the changes to here definitely made it more strict than the way that our current policy was written because it doesn't list micro-purchase as one of the um, non-competitive ones in the current policy. It only lists four. So when we aligned it straight exactly to the language of the code, we we added the um, micro-purchase. That's not to say, you know, it wasn't being followed before, but it certainly wasn't clear. And so we're making it very clear that it's one of the ones that it does have to be, you know, uh, a written justification so that there's no, you know, doubt about it. So we always lean toward being more strict and everything that, that we do. Okay. You know, I, I know that this, um, that this was covered in depth at committee. Mm -hmm. So uh, if, there, if there is any um, 
don't feel the need to revisit every single item since committee has already heard this Correct. unless through the chair you you believe that there should be more substantive conversation yeah. here at the full board no. Okay. All right. Great. No. Yeah. Uh, uh, I, I appreciate that. But but I very much appreciate you, uh, 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 Chair Lindo, you bringing the item to the full board for discussion, especially for an item uh, that is regarding procurement and how dollars are uh, how dollars are spent and how the controls associated with that spending and decision making is made. So, Wadi, I just want to thank you very much for the time that you've taken to oh. be so diligent about this work yes. um, uh, and again in the name of efficiency uh, and given that there has been robust and documented discussion both here and at committee I just want to say thank you this no is problem. not jumping over that work mm -hmm. uh, but a recognition of the substance of your work thus far along with your colleagues um, so just thank you yeah thank you very much for for, for, for this and for raising the bar of integrity for the Housing Authority because that's thank what you're you. doing I appreciate that and Luana you would concur absolutely yeah, Thank she you. went, no, I just want to acknowledge that she went through in-depth detail, took the initiative to do that, and go through the, the policy and align them. It took a lot of work and diligence, so we really appreciate that. Thank you. Thank so, you. Okay. Um, so, uh, when there's time, mm -hmm. if there is time, um, uh, is there um, uh, a more substantive <coughs> executive summary of uh, the changes that have been made to procurement policy that can be provided? Because, and the, and the reason I raise that is just because um, uh, the depth of the work that's been done mm -hmm. uh, uh, and some of the summary that you provided mm -hmm. uh, in your HeyNow document, right. um, uh, I think is, is helpful for us to all have at our fingertips mm -hmm. in regards to how seriously, but also how succinctly we can talk about the procurement policies at play, the themes involved that we've discussed here, uh, and how the, we can just be ready uh, with that um, uh, as an authority. It's not a, so you definitely have the revision matrix that has all of the current language in one section of the chart and then all of the revised language. There's also a section that tells you if it was revised, if there was no change, if it was simply moved somewhere else. It's very in-depth. I'm just speaking at the highest level in terms we can, of... We can have that to you. Thank you. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's no problem. Thank, thank you. you very much. Yeah. Thank you For very much, time. Zawadi. All right. No problem. Thank you, Zawadi. Any public comment on item number 9B? Then we can ask for a motion of a motion for approval. I move to approve. And a second. Second. Roll call vote. President Torres? Aye. Commissioner Lindo? Aye. Commissioner Kim? Aye. And Commissioner Bikes? Aye. So moved, thank you. Item 12C. Resolution approving and adopting the Housing Authority of the City and County of San Francisco's investment policy, effective March 1st, 2024, which conforms to all federal, state, and local statutes governing the investment of public funds. And this will be presented by Mamadou Ning, our Chief Financial Officer. Good evening, Commissioners. Um, I'm here tonight to request the Commission approval for the updated authority investment policy. So the current investment policy that we have was approved by the Authority Commission on August 4, 1987. So it's been quite a few years and there's been a lot of, quite a few updates from HUD uh, on the guideline on how, how to invest fund. So we have designed this policy to maximize earning in the interest and ex, uh, of the excess cash we have. 
So the earnings are necessary to maintain uh, or improve the services that we provide to our program participants. We currently serve, serve over 30,000 participants citywide, and we have a few initiatives that we've been uh, partner, partnering with the city. Uh, I can, some of those are the turkey drive that we do every, uh, around, around the holidays, and the toy drive, uh, backpack giveaway. So having these underseed under funding will help us extend those services or make sure we uh, continue to offer those. Next slide. So the objective of this investment policy uh, are threefold: is capital preservation, uh, generate maxim max maximum investment revenue at the shortest time, and ensure that we have funds available for operating requirements. Next slide. And this policy applies to uh, the COCC reserve. That's reserve we set aside uh, to help us address some of the long-term liability we have and also funding that are above our day-to-day -day operational need. So any funding we have in the general fund that's not needed uh, for, uh, on, on, on a day-to-day -day base, basis, that's funding that's available to invest. And right now our goal is to make sure we have uh, four months of, um, of fund available in the general fund to cover our operational need, but anything above that threshold of four months um, can be invested. And the four month, that's just based on uh, HUD benchmarking and HUD gu guideline. At the minimum, what's recommended to have at least four month worth of operating uh, need. Next. So we will be coming on a quarterly basis and provide a summary uh, to detailing the authority fund position, the, the value of our investment, uh, how the interest earned, the asset listing. So we'll be on a quarterly basis providing that information. So we'll come up with a format and then share that with the commission, both on the finance committee and the full board. Next slide shows some of the investment uh, that are approved by HUD. So there's a limited number of instruments that PHA are allowed to invest in, and on the policy as appendix, we added a summary of all the investment approved by HUD. And these are mostly all U.S. Treasury investment and fully guaranteed by the Fed and pretty secure. Next slide. Uh, since we are right now really uh, implementing our investment program, we will basically uh, invest, focus on the rate of return on our investment, making sure that the, uh, we limit the risk on our investment by aligning with the HUD recommendation in terms of what instrument we're going to invest in, and making sure that the length of the investment are based on uh, the market condition and the liquidity and the lead and the need or the operational need. So we are going to mainly for, uh, invest on uh, commercial paper and uh, U.S. government bond and money market. And these are really short-term, and uh, the return is pretty, at this time, is around 4 5%. Next slide. On the different options, so for the first quarter, our plan is to invest the fund we have available into U.S. Treasury money market. That's the highlighted in yellow. 
these fund this security is highly liquid. liquid. It's uh, as you can see, it's the 97.2 percent uh, liquidity, meaning it's mostly cash. We can at any time, one day, notice sell the security and get the money back, and it's. The return is really in line with the uh, US Treasury obligations. It's all around 5%. So low risk, no risk, but it's fully guaranteed by the Fed and uh, a pretty decent uh, return, 5%. Next slide shows um, uh, hypothetical returns. If, as, if today we were to invest 1 million, bottom line, the gray line shows the the current return that we have on the U.S. bank, so there's no, no return really. But if you were to invest the same amount, one million, into a treasury money market, uh, maturing in one year, the return will be 46,973. That's at 5%. And if you were to invest uh, into a um, treasury bill, that's the orange, that's pretty much the same return. It's around 5%. So this just shows potential earnings and by investing this money is just sitting idle in a bank account right now. Sorry? Just, just a quick pause. Uh, I'll wait. I'll wait. Mm-hmm. So next slide shows some alternative investment, so long, longer-term investment. Um, this is where after our initial investment, these are some options we can uh, present to the commission and your approval, we can also explore these sort of short-term, longer-term investment. So between uh, three months to two years. And these also have a uh, rate of return that are pretty significant at this time. And the, the Fed has been keeping this rate at 5 to 5, 5.25 to 5.5. And these rates have been the highest since 2001. So the, even though the Fed is projecting um, these rates start going down later in 24, but as of now, any of these investments will be uh, provide some significant earning for the housing authority. And last slide, that's also just showed the historical years, the historical uh, return. So as I mentioned, uh, rate, rate of return was used to be really low, but since the Fed has been Raising the rate, we are, we've been seeing uh, return around 5% pretty high. Right. Yep, that's my last slide. So I can. Um, when you, thank you so much, Mamadou. So just, just again to frame, what is the question for us as, the, as a commission right now in relationship to the investment policy? Um, just we wanted to make sure we have a revised policy because the one we have is dated from back from 1987. So the p- instrument we have listed on our policy are pretty outdated, so we need to make sure we have updated policy listing all uh, following the HUD guideline, the allowable investment. And for us, on having this policy in place, uh, any sort of requirement from HUD, you need to have a policy in place, a cash management policy. That will allow us then to start investing and earning some potential uh, return. And what is the current investment activity going on today? No activity. Uh, we have not, uh, Dr. hasn't been investing any funding. We, well, I should say we haven't had any funding available to invest. Um, but this time, uh, we have some reserve that we've been building up to help address some of the liability we have, the trust fund liability. 
but it's just sitting on an account that's not earning any interest. So for us... As it sits, what's the average length of time that those reserve funds are sitting idle? Um, so we've been building up this reserve since end of 22. That's when we had to do the last round of layoff and pay out, pay out all those severance. So that really depleted the reserve. But since then, we've been trying to build up that reserve. Uh, so it's been sitting in that account since 20, September 22. So for now, we, it's building up the reserve. And as we are able to have some saving, the goal is just to invest, earn some maximized basically profit. And what are the controls by statute that apply to the investment decisions that we're allowed to make with those reserve funds? Um, it's going to be up to the commission. Uh, the HUD just provided a guideline where you can invest, and there's some, it has to be an instrument that's fully guaranteed and insured. But the allocation where, where we can put the money that's really based on this policy, the CEO approval, the commission approval. So Uncle John can't be given the reserve funds to invest. We, it has to be as guided as you, as you shared here, correct? Yes, yes. Make sure Uncle John is not involved because we've had problems with Uncle John. No. Okay. Um, uh, that's the other provision under Hey Now, just for everyone to be, <laughs> to be aware of. Um, uh, the interest, uh, the return on the investment, that is gross or net, or does that include... Uh, does that include fees as well, based on that there's second no, to last slide? There's no, for the money market, when we checked with uh, contact the bank, there's no fee. That's just a net earnings. Right. And the money market is going to be earning daily. So at any time, we can uh, pull the money back and use it. What is the potential value of investments that the authority could make by when? And mm -hmm. uh, what is that, and for how long? So the plan as this policy is going to be effective uh, March 1st is next month we'll be able to work with ES Bank and make sure we have this set up, this account. And the earnings for us, as we earn, the goal is really to be able to use that uh, earnings because it's going to be unrestricted, to use that to uh, provide more services uh, to our participants. Mm -hmm. So we do have a couple of initiatives we would like to uh, really fund independently using our, these earnings. And the, um, the source of these investment funds are? Uh, that's some, um, so there's been a quite a shift since we uh, outsourced both the HTV program and the public housing program. So right now, the, the, our expense for COCC is really limited because we only have limited staff. And our expense are, we keep a pretty tight control on our expenditure. So we are able to you know, generate some saving that we are able to put, out, put aside on the reserve because we know we have some long-term liability that we need to address, mm -hmm. especially on the trust funds. Those are immediate li liability right now. We are going through the uh, process of negotiating, uh, reviewing the demand letter from the trust fund and making some payment. So most of those, we have to make payment quarterly. And, or if you have the funding to settle, you can pay lump sum. But for now, we're just paying as they come due quarterly basis. And so we have some funding sitting that we can invest. And as we earn, we can, you know, we'll be able to afford paying more. Um, with regards to conversations with city partners, mm -hmm. whether that's mayor's office of community housing or, or, or other partners, what's been the level of discussion that we've had about these opportunities that we seek to pursue? We've been... On the funding, we've been talking to uh, the Treasury, uh, TTX, 
because the U.S. bank contact we have right now, we, we were part of the citywide RFP that they did two years ago. So that's how we entered into contact with U.S. bank. So, but at this time, we don't, our funding available is not significant enough to really uh, reach out to the city because the city has its own pool of funding investment. Mm -hmm. But as for us right now, we don't have enough funding to really start a conversation with the city to join that pool. The, 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 the basis for my question is just to ensure that um, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's a significant advancement for the housing authority to be in a position where there are reserves mm -hmm. and there's a strategy associated with expertise involved that allows the, this body to invest yeah. uh, and seek a return that helps us with our long-term financial obligations, yep. some of which you just mentioned. Yep. Um, the, the intention of making sure those conversations are in place is that, number one, it shows movement of the authority. Mm -hmm. Number two, it provides transparency around investment strategies that we can't pursue. And then also the due diligence that's been made with those other entities to ensure that everyone is aware of the actions that we are taking uh, and have the ability to take so that there's no surprises around advancements that the authority is able to make to serve um, collective goals, which are mm -hmm. um, paying our debts. Yeah. Um, uh, as it were, um, uh, and also that other bodies are aware mm -hmm. about those um, uh, positive uh, investment strategies that can be pursued um, uh, that are um, based on sound investment strategies mm -hmm. that we've had conversations with, again, for the purposes of transparency um, uh, with city partners. So I, I would just encourage this body mm -hmm. to ensure that it's having those conversations with the city um, uh, uh, clearly and directly um, about investment strategies that we want that we plan to pursue based on board approval uh, in the coming weeks is what it sounds like. Yes, so we take well, let's say we're taking baby steps. So for now, this is really just money market. So it's the lowest risk investment. Mm -hmm. But as we grow the pool of investment, yes, the plan is to really work closely with the city. We've been talking with TTX team um, since the RFP. So they the plan is really to join the city pool eventually as we grow this pool of money. Because then uh, we could be just part of the whole city family and the investment is going to be just part of the citywide investment. And we'll share that with the commission as well. But that's, you know, the pool of funding that the city is managing is much larger and they have better return. But for us, yeah. You know, the, the, the there are connections, the um the reform efforts of the mm -hmm. of the city were around maximizing the potential mm -hmm. to better serve our residents, mm -hmm. um, to be uh, an exemplary model of good government um, as we expand and reach toward those goals of providing better services to residents, mm -hmm. which included, of course, um, provisions we had to respond to in terms of HUD guidance around changing how our workforce was supporting residents through contractors, um, which had impacts to our labor partners which we are seeking to address with these issues that you mentioned in terms of trust obligations that we still need to service. Um, I, I just want to be sure that uh, given the collaboration that we have with the city beyond TTX, mm. that would specifically be connected to our long-term strategies here, that the other partners, MOCD, mm -hmm. Mayor's Office, are clearly aware mm -hmm. of these substantive positive yes, changes yes. that we're making. Yep, yep. And I haven't heard that yet clearly. Yes, yes, and yes. I, would like to, I would like to hear that to make sure that we're working in alignment with our partners and everyone. Yes, 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 yes. We've been talking to the mayor office and all city partner on our own strategy, how, especially on this long-term liability and figuring out how we can address those. So our goal is to be able to uh, 
pay for those liability and be self-sustained. But this is part of the one of the strategy we try to right. implement to do it. Uh, but at the same time, we you know we any partnership we can get from the city that's more than welcome. So those conversations have been happening and I believe weekly. And conversely, I would say the city would say any partnership we can get from the housing authority, mm -hmm. and this is a prime example of positive movement forward yep. and mm -hmm. achieving that goal. So it's great. I think it's great news. Yep. Um, I, I particularly enjoy the hypothetical return slide. Could you go to that? Because I saw that and I was like, wow, you know, sign me up. Um, and I chuckle. I, I enjoy this one. Like, who would not want this? So, yeah. um, I, Mama, do I thank you for adding yeah. all this other information uh, just to sort of support the, uh, the, the chart? Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. Just two sort of basic um, elementary questions. One, is there any scenario by which we could actually lose our money? Right now, doing investing in the modern market, no, it's 97% liquid, so there's no chance of losing that funding. You can anytime, one day notice, get the money back, and with whatever interest you earn for that day. So as there's other instruments, like mostly these instruments are only fully guaranteed. There's no risk of losing the funding because it's backed by the Fed. So it's, when you start investing in... Uh, in some of the some other instrument that's where you, some of the instruments have higher return, but there's some risk. Like so, you may not make as much money, but there's no situation by which you would actually uh, take uh, uh, get back less than you actually invested. No, not based on what HUD allows you to do. HUD is pretty restrictive. But you just avoid that situation. It's only back instrument that you can invest. So it's all fully guaranteed, and you can recover your funding. So the investment, may, the return may be less. Uh, historically, it's been less, but currently, because of the high Fed rate, it's around 5%, but that's not, yeah, But it typical. wouldn't be negative. It wouldn't be. This wonderful blue line may not be as this way. It might be a little bit less. But it, it may start going down way. as the Fed sort of start. But it wouldn't go underneath this line? No, no, okay. not, it's fully um, guaranteed. And then in our policy, does it indicate that we will reinvest uh, that we will take the earnings, the excess, and put it to fund services, or does a po does, is the policy silent on that, or does it? It's silent on that. It's okay. just maximizing maximizing the revenue. It's going to be up to the commission and the, and the CEO to. And that uh, is that's an operational decision with the yeah. CEO. Got yeah. it. Okay, thank you. And just to your question, Commissioner Kim, really the desire is. Um, as we're maximizing the dollars is also how do we pour back those fund that fund are those excess funds back into the community because they're not restricted and the do mm -hmm. the dollars we get are restricted in what we can and cannot do with them and so oh interesting but the ex the the excess we get is not restricted right mm -hmm. and so as an example um when we are providing provisions during the holiday times, right? Um, we have to figure out where those funds are gonna come from. The city gives us funds and so forth and on. So this is a way where we have unrestricted dollars, we're able to contribute to that process and know that, oh, we have this much funding. And if there's a special event going on in the community, we have the latitude to think about, oh, we wanna contribute to that just different things that potentially happen in the community that we're supporting. And those contributions, are they 
under procurement rules, or can, are they totally discretionary under your your uh, or some internal individual to just give out? No, I'm sure there's a technical term. Yeah, they're depending on what it is. Um, their procurement rules. When we mm -hmm. procure turkeys, you know, we procured what eighty. I don't know how many thousands of turkeys. Those were. All of it's under rules, you know, even though we're making decision that, oh, this money potentially can go to this event, but that event means that something's mm -hmm. being procured, right? Could it be gifted to a, an individual organization without going through any particular... To rule? a nonprofit organization? No, it would be to a grant. And no, if you have to go through a grant. Yeah. yeah, and then we'll have to come to the commission. Thank you. See, I ask a lot of questions when I'm touching the money. <laughs> yeah, just, I can't even get to the accounts. Just keep just it out of Uncle records. Joe's hands. Just keep it out of Uncle <laughs> They're in Mamadou's hands and yeah. Linda's hands. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> oh, we all. <laughs> he says a lot. <laughs> Mamadou, congratulations. It's a nice, it's really nice movement. I mean, how, how do you feel about it? I mean, it's, it's, did you expect when you first came into a very clean uh, well, we environment that you would see that you saw this path? No, we're excited. We, uh, Roy is not here, but he's been, he spent a lot, spent a lot of time on the policy, looking at options and uh, talking to Yes Bank. So we're looking forward to invest this and being able to report on a quarterly basis, the progress mm -hmm. and and, and investment choices yes. or yeah. mm -hmm. and see they can do that because they told me no a lot <laughs> right yeah. that rainy day excited mama do thank you thank you very much okay public comment any public comment then we can ask for a motion for approval and a second I second. Roll call vote, President Torres. Aye. Commissioner Lindo. Aye. Commissioner Kim. Aye. And Commissioner Pikes. So moved, thank you. <laughs> Item 12D, this is the resolution approving the Housing Authority of the City and County of San Francisco's revised personnel policies and procedures effective March 1st, 2024, presented by Ted Perini, our Senior Human Resources Analyst. Evening, Commissioners. We're, uh, we're almost there. Um, thank you, Bennett. <laughs> Almost. I wouldn't have said that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, that's true. You're right, sir. Jinx. All right. Uh, so I'm here today to present uh, the pres uh, proposed updates of our personnel policies and procedures. Uh, so the intention of these policies and procedures is really to provide clear guidelines for employees and management regarding the authority's employment practices, rights, and responsibilities, and to help protect staff and the authority of certain legal liabilities. The authority's focus is really to ensure these policies and procedures are fair, consistent, and equitable to all authority staff. Uh, next slide. Um, so what you see here is just a quick uh, timeline of the recent updates made to these policies and procedures. Uh, as you can see, the last time the commission approved our policies and procedures uh, was back in 2001, uh, which is now over 20 years ago. Um, in 2018, our Human Resources Department initiated the process of reviewing these policies and procedures, but it was all delayed during, uh, due to the emergency, uh, the emergence of COVID-19. Uh, but then in 2023, our HR legal team and third-party counsel at Sloan Sakai, Young, and Wong uh, re-engaged in reviewing these policies uh, and procedures to ensure uh, each policy and procedure is in compliance with uh, local, state, and federal employment laws and uh, that they align with the city. 
Uh, next slide. Uh, so we can see here, so this is the initial uh, change of the document, uh, which is to make sure uh, the format complies with the quality assurance process, uh, which was designed by our transition team in 2021. Uh, this makes, it just makes the document look a lot easier to read. Um, next slide. And then these are actually all the policies that we uh, uh, reviewed as a team to ensure compliance and update the policy shown here. Uh, but we really focused on the legal employment policies to make sure those are all up to date. And for further reference, uh, our commission uh, has been given a spreadsheet, which includes all the changes made in each of those policies. It's uh, very in-depth. Uh, keep in mind, the spreadsheet only shows all substance updates. Um, uh, grammar, misspelling, all that kind of stuff is not included. Uh, next slide. Uh, so on this slide, so if just for full transparency to our commission, uh, we did want to point out that we did make a couple updates since our committee meeting uh, last week, which we want to share today or this evening. Um, all red text in the slides going forward indicate an update since committee. Um, uh, we also want to point out that we have two new policies added uh, to our personnel policies and procedures, which uh, we're sharing, we're, uh, which were shared last uh, last week during committee. Uh, so those two policies, uh, that's our generative uh, artificial intelligence policy, uh, which was recommended by our council, and then our statements of economic interest policy, uh, which uh, that was actually re recommended by our commission, and that includes language on behested payments. Uh, next slide. Um, so these, uh, so uh, slide, this slide and the next slide are really the, uh, the big update that we did since uh, committee. Uh, which is an update on our paid leave policy, uh, which now includes management leave. Um, in short, in short uh, this is a leave that will provide That's a lot of red. It's, yeah, well, it's a whole section that we added to it. Um, uh, but in short, it's, well, in length, I guess. Uh, it's a leave that will provide our leadership with uh, additional time off uh, each year to supplement the extended hours beyond the many long nights and weekends sacrificed to keep the authority afloat. Uh, will also continue to be offered to legacy staff who have uh, who had received management leave prior to 9-30-2022. Um, and then you could probably move on to the last slide there, slide nine. Uh, the last slide was added to show an additional language uh, we uh, included to our new uh, generative AI policy. Uh, we've updated the acknowledgement and uh, compliance section to make it clear that all employees and their supervisors We'll have to complete an acknowledgement before using any AI tools within the agency's environments. And that's the policies and procedures. Any and questions? Are, um, other than three employees, aren't all employees of the housing, aren't, aren't all employees of the housing authority at will? Uh, yes, that's correct. So is there a reason for why there are so many provisions of just cause that, uh, actually are a, more applicable to a, a uh, individuals under a union contract versus um, at-will employment? So actually, I think technically all staff at the authority are at-will, uh, just under California law. Um, and because we have no MOUs to fall under, um, we just, everybody falls under the policies and procedures and technically that means everyone would be at-will. I mean, I am definitely not opposed to making sure that people have um, a fair, transparent process, but it is just, it's, it's an interesting 
note. Okay, regarding that. Um, I didn't see provision, normally when you see um, HR policies, and I know personal policies, and I know you had it reviewed by a law firm, a reputable mm -hmm. law firm. Um, I, didn't, I didn't see a section, um, I didn't pour over your policies and procedures, but I didn't see a section on that the policies and procedures do not, um, do not create an employment contract. Is that language in there, do you know? Uh, I don't believe so. Might be worth so. looking at just yeah. so that you don't have you're not developing an employment contract through your policies and procedures. Okay. Um, and then mm. I think one sort of comment about I I understand and appreciate the the management leave, and I think I did see uh, my my concern about it. This is my my comment. I think about this is. You have one group of individuals who fall under the Fair Labor Standard Act and they're entitled to paid overtime. Then you have a group of individuals in your organization where you will be giving um, 80 hours of management leave and recognition of extra hours. I think you have a group of individuals, analysts and others, who may not qualify for any additional time based on FL FLSA and through the policies and procedures are not are not granting an additional 80 hours and recognition of additional time. Is there any thought or research about what you're gonna, about any anything in that group of individuals who aren't in either one? Who may Hasn't be come up. to do additional work yeah. but will not have compensation? And what will that be for the morale of your organization? So just to give a little bit of background on the management leave, I think it might help the commission. The management leave has traditionally been part of the MEA MOU agreement, and the housing authority has consistently over this transition period had to go back when we were asked about management leave and go back to an MOU that is no longer um, in contract and to look at this particular provision for those individuals who either already have management leave or are coming on board and should have management leave based on uh, whatever uh, roles they have. And so what we tried to do here is we took the policy um, that from the policy you're seeing comes from the MOU. It's not a substantive change otherwise to, so that all of our policies are in one location for staff. The uh, classifications are the only difference and that's because the classifications in the MEA MOU would be MEA positions. Can I and just, so when sorry, to answer, it, yeah. yeah, but just to sort of, I understand that. I just want to make sure that we don't have a situation by which leadership cr who creates policies mm -hmm. ensures that they get 80 hours of management leave and those who may not necessarily be in that um, do not have the benefit of that provision coming over. So I understand that the justification or the explanation is, oh, well, they were an MEA, it got moved over, so they're going to get 80 hours. Mm -hmm. And yet there are other individuals where we, we opted perhaps not to bring over certain extra leave protections from their MOUs. So I just, I just ask that you look at that and consider that so that you don't end up with a tier where there's a middle group who are not afforded um, that. Or if that, that's not the, the decision of the housing authority or the recommendation, let's have an explanation of why it is that this, that certain groups get the MEA additional Others get it through FLSA, and then this middle group who don't get it through FLSA will just not get anything. Yeah, so one of the things we looked at when we, uh, when we identified these classifications was who's managing staff. 
Uh, there are a number of individuals that are not managing staff right now that may have previously fallen under the MEA agreement, but under the current housing authority structure, they're not managing. And then you have what you see here as legacy employees, which we did discuss with outside counsel. They already have the benefit. They were already ha they had the benefit as of the September layoffs in 2022. And so those individuals, which are, I believe, two individuals would continue to have that benefit unless their classification changed their promotion, demotion, or termination of some sort. And I, I do also want to say that this is a starting point. This policy hasn't been updated in over 20 years. Um, but we did create kind of some, some, some standards, and I think one of the big standards was, are you actually managing any staff since it's management leave? Just a hypothetical, what if this policy were not necessarily moving forward this time and there was a little bit more review of that? Is there a reason why this has to go before, just out of curiosity, has to go today? So Does the policy have to move forward to, for a vote yeah. today? So what, I think what's more important than just the policy having to go for today is what is it that we're really trying to get at? Because the reality is, from my perspective, if, I, if you just look at it from a pure perspective that I don't, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, I don't believe that, I believe that every staff at the Housing Authority is at will. And I think if there's been work with an employment specialist who's very familiar to this board, there has been benchmarking, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, on why the policy is being brought forward, then the question is, are we trying to dovetail it into something that we've all that we're familiar with on the city side where it works into MOUs and so forth and on you know so for me I'm trying to figure out what are we really delineating in that and what is the basis of it in terms of where it sits from the logical perspective of if you have unions our local 21 and MEA and on and on and on versus everyone is being at will and what does it look at look like from benchmarking of other housing authorities, other jurisdictions? Because I'm asking that because I want to understand and where we really need to think more about it so that I'm clear about what are we thinking about from your perspective. I so I don't miss it because it's um, important. I think I don't think it's um, the way that the pol the the amendments are done appear to be um, a patchwork of things just put together. Um, and I, I, I'm not 100% sure what is the big picture strategy vision that would go into how these policies and procedures are. Because on one hand, um, housing authority employees are at will. But there's also a philosophy that you would like to have as it pertains to your workforce. Do you give them, do you give a level of due process that you would not, that, that, that other organizations who are at will don't? Um, and then as you look at leaves, why is it that management, what is the philosophy behind management getting 80 hours and, and others not? Like what is, what is the big picture that is, that is being put into this 
um, this policy. It just seems as if this is a time to amend, we will amend these different things, but how does that align to where the Housing Authority needs to go as it relates to being a high performer and meeting its mission and how do these policies um, help go in that direction? So I think if yeah. this is a technical approval that you're seeking, like we've made these changes and we want these things moved and we want these sort of provisions added and we want AI to be added, technically that's one thing. But I still, I, I'm, I'm just struggling with how these policies and procedures align with, for instance, what you're trying to get, where you're trying to go with your strategic, your, your strategic plan. Well, I don't think from my perspective if you fully outline what is an at-will employee and what an at-will employee has a right to, right? And fundamentally, they're still, you have the fundamental protections of labor law regardless of if there's an MOU because it's a bargaining situation or not. There are things that you fundamentally have to do for employees and to be a fair employer. So the real question becomes, you know, as you place this, um, as you are stating it, is it that really simply from a board perspective, are you saying that, well, I really prefer that X, Y, and Z, if you're going to do management um, leave, if you will, that everyone has that opportunity? You know, because when I think about management leave from this side of the world, just me sitting in a, in a bargaining unit, those are things, I, I think like in MEA, there's management leave. I don't know, I don't remember in Local 21 if there's management leave. No. Mm -mm. And I don't know, I don't, in SEIU, there's not. So, I, I you know, and the question is, what does management leave really mean? And I think that's important because you're bringing it forward and my understanding of management leave, I see it from you're managing so forth and on and you're working, you're, you're doing the job until it gets done fundamentally. So do we need to see it differently? Well, I um, so you know, go back to sort of what is the policy and it's to be fair, consistent and equitable. It doesn't mean necessarily everyone everyone gets the same thing because mm -hmm. there are laws right. that sort of do right. that. Um, and in the interest of time, I won't go into the history because uh, I was on the MEA board and understand the history of why management leave came in. It was a bargained benefit, mm -hmm. right? You're not entitled to management leave. It was done through bargaining um, and negotiation with the, right? So I I don't I don't, um, I do think it's important for people to have some level of process. You know, you're at will, but there's a philosophy behind about being fair, consistent, equitable, transparent. And so I, um, you know, I've been in management a while. I don't, I, I understand the amount of work and time, and I don't think 80 hours, frankly, is enough about the, all the extra work that's put in. I just don't understand, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to sort of um, reconcile others in the organization who may also put additional time in and there is no there's no so you know the law is you just do the work once you're once you're post FLSA you do the work and there's no additional compensation is that is that 
is that consistent with the application of fair, consistent, equitable, transparent? But isn't um, there the there opportunity are. for CTO? There are other no. things there that's that. For the city. I'm sorry. That might be the that's city. bargained. So, but I'm just saying over time, whatever it is. That's only. I mean, if you are only under the Fair Labor Standards Act, then there are certain classifications who are who who by law get yeah. overtime. Anyone else, you don't get anything. The reason why we get it in the city is because it's bargained. Comp time is bargained. It's not automatically given to you by law. Um, and of course, you have to do the work. You have to get approved. There are all these rules that that um, that get um, added in <coughs> to ensure um, um, uh, that things are followed properly, and you don't have a budget overrun in these things. Yes. But it, there's but it's bargained, right? Just like management leave is is a bargained benefit. So the proposed policy has the benefit of a bargained. Um, provision in the MEA in the higher so classifications, there you go. but not the others. So, so is for that me, that's the answer right there. That what I was looking for to really understand. So, really, what you're saying is that this particular element that we're discussing really is an element of normal bargaining. No, what I'm saying is I don't understand why certain groups are getting something and others are not. I don't under I don't understand why. Um, what is what is the what is the thought the policy when you're running an organization and being fair, consistent, equitable, and I would add transparent around your strategic plan? Why is it that certain groups are getting an added benefit and other groups are not? Like why why is that? I don't understand. I'm just trying to understand that. So I do think it's worth stating that nothing, no classification here, um, or no classification would get the benefit removed, so nobody's going to lose anything. Um, there would be one classification here that would probably get the benefit, that should be getting the benefit and is not getting the benefit and can't get the benefit unless the policy is approved. Um, and I would say, in addition to that, in the policy, there are other forms of, uh, of acknowledging staff that maybe they're not management, uh, but they might be working past their time and they're not uh, they don't, they can't get overtime. So there's like merit awards, there's performance awards, and those can be financial incentives. So there are I don't I, I'm not familiar with the you know intricacies of the city policy and whether the city can do that as well. But the housing authority does have that already built into the policy. So individuals can get. So if you work extra hours, you can get a merit increase. You can get additional compensation. Like a, it's like a performance increase. It's like a performance award that can be recommended by your supervisor, and it's a percentage of your salary. It can't go past a certain percent. I, I believe it's 5 or 7%. Is there a salary cap? For everybody, there's a salary cap. Salary, yeah. yeah. Um, and then, so some will, even though the policy doesn't allow it, there will be some who will get it through legacy. The policy does allow it through legacy. So, and again, we're, we're talking about um, two, two employees. Um, <coughs> That would get it their legacy. Yeah, I mean, that, I don't know. I mean, that continues to sort of make 
like there are all these exceptions and certain people get things and there's not really a, to me I still have trouble aligning it to the um, yeah, so, so, yeah. so what it sounds like is that there are still some questions you have around the equitable application of benefits for some employees over others. You have some of those questions that just based on listening are still unanswered and doesn't seem as though there's going to be a satisfaction for this particular meeting. It doesn't seem like there's any pressure for us to move forward specifically in this meeting around this policy measure and that we can revisit this for a vote next month. Well, we can also take this item off of the change and have the commission, ask the commission to approve the rest of the personnel policies and procedures. Um, this has been a work in progress since 2018, and we have had it reviewed by a third party, and if the holdup is the this management leave, then I would suggest taking this out, and we can bring this back and maybe discuss further with Commissioner Kim uh, how to, how to address it, and maybe we can even do some comparables and do a chart um, that might help, too. I actually have more <coughs> questions and would prefer that we defer it a, a month than to take out a certain portion of it, if that's possible. We'll likely be deferred a couple so of months. So it's, <laughs> it's going to be deferred until, I'm, until Linda gets back. I, I haven't done the substantive work on it myself, Tanya. And um, it's really important because there's been more, more so Linda working on it with our third party um, labor attorney. And so her expertise, because she has spent all the time, and Mamadou, of course, has been involved, but not to the extent Linda has been involved. And part of that policy you know, we, we have staff who today have been with us for over two years on our team who are not permanent employees, and we need, we need to move them into permanent employment so that they feel assured that they have a place as well. So we're trying to structure the policy so that we have a concrete policy that really, um, is guiding the agency. And these so, two individuals cannot be permanent unless the It's not just is two employees. That, that piece is not most important the, as it relates to the management um, leave, as it is the policy, all of the other pieces of the policy. So, and it's maybe Sorry, see, I let you just want to say, just to that point, it, we have about, out of 27 staff members, about 21 are temporary. And we, we uh, are ready to offer regular positions and want to align it to an updated policy. Because if they have the existing policy, what is the because policies change and they get updated, what is it about their employment that can't proceed because you're not updating a policy? Like, which provision in there is 
is creating an issue for your inability to bring on board 21 people. So generally, as I understand it, the benefits that you get at the time of employment are the benefits that stay with you. So while the policy may not change and not having any bargaining groups, the benefits are actually in your policy. So your annual leave, your sick time, your management leave, those are all part of the policy that's attached to your, uh, your offer. But you can enhance them through the course of your employment. You, you can enhance them, but you can't take them away. Well, you're not supposed to take them away, as I understand from council, too. So you want, so these policies are being updated because you want to decrease the level of benefits that are provided? That's it. Actually, some of them will be increased. Nobody will have less benefits. Right. So if the policy gets amended, six, you, they get hired today, and the policy gets amended six months from now, seven months from now, and they're enhanced, they can get the enhanced benefit of the ben they can get the enhanced benefits. If they're, if they're enhanced. That's correct. Is there any reason that some of the substantive questions that are being raised by Commissioner Kim can't be had directly with third-party counsel? No, I would suggest that she and Linda, well, yeah, and our third-party counsel sit and talk because it's not in on my back and forth with you is just a dialogue to understand and air it through and so I don't see any reason why the three of you all can't get together and have that dialogue I think it's important because yeah. Linda has spent a lot of time and it would be better for the three of you to have that discussion great to me I mean, whenever, whenever you have time. Yeah, yeah, no, we can we can definitely make that happen. And I do just want to make it clear, this has been um, kind of in the works for some time. I have to give credit to Ted Brainy because Ted's been working quite a bit on this. Um, but I do I do want to say that it's the timing now is linked with my leave and it's linked with the offer letters that we want to go out. Um, but it's also just linked to finalizing it. It has just been here since 2018. I was at the very first meeting we had with our then HR director. I think it's gone through third-party review now twice, so we've paid for third-party to review it twice. Um, and so we'd, we'd really like to get to a point where we can finalize a policy since it's been so long since we've had any updates to it. But we'd be happy to set that up. Just And uh, by setting that up, we're going to have some of the questions answered. Maybe some particular amendments will be made in that process. If there are any additional amendments that are made to the policy before it comes back to this commission, will that still be able to happen at the next commission meeting? Yeah, I think it could because okay, then there is a, a three-party dialogue and the belief would be that Commissioner Kim's questions would be answered. And the reality is she is an expert in this field, so being able to have those questions answered, we should be able to move forward. That's great. In my mind, right. without a full explanation of every detail. Well, that might happen as well, uh, well if I know Commissioner Kim. Um, uh, well, Commissioner so, Kim great. would help give that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that's what I'm, that's the point that I'm making. Part of the podium to stand on. Yeah. yeah. Okay. It's great. All right. Thank great. you very much. Thank you. So, Thank you. Um, uh, so, so just to be clear, we are going to be continuing this item until the next commission meeting. All right. Uh, do we need to take a vote on that at all? I, 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 no. Okay, I don't great. think so. All right. Great. So let's go on to the next 45-minute item. <laughs> <laughs>
um, that it would be item 12E, the resolution approving the San Francisco Housing Authority's five-year strategic plan for the calendar years 2024 to 2028. Linda Mason, General Counsel. Thanks, Commissioners. This is uh, our last item tonight. Um, so the strategic plan was part of the Board of Commissioners, I'll say, um, charge to ensure that the Housing Authority, one, has a strategic plan because it's in the best practice of the industry to have a strategic plan to know where you're going. But it was also part of the HUD-required uh, agreement that was entered into between the City and County of San Francisco, the Housing Authority, um, and the, the Board of Commissioners to get to High Performer. So the specific tasks and dates are provided to authority staff for implementation and a strategic plan I just want to highlight is required at this time of the Housing Authority. Um, next slide, please. The strategic plan process, we just want to let the commission know that we did have five staff retreats. In these staff retreats, we talked about what is known as SOAR, strengths, opportunities, aspirations, and results. So this uh, under SOAR, you're looking at your agency strengths and your agency aspirations. We looked at our mission and we revised our mission. We also looked at our vision and collectively revised our vision. And we also looked at the strategic objectives. We did have a meeting with each of the commissioners just to get feedback on what you'd like to see in the strategic plan. And then the last part of this was we met twice as a senior leadership team, looked at what the objectives were and actually put names and titles to each one that can be completed within the next year to make sure it actually comes to fruition. Next slide, please. Oh, sorry. So on the SOAR, the strengths focuses on the people, the mission and purpose, the assets and the history. The opportunities focuses on staff, communication, city partnerships, development, programs, tech and data. The aspirations focuses on work-life balance, programs, agency perception, operational effectiveness. And the results really focuses on performance, what is the mission of the agency, and what's the agency brand. So the, the updated mission statement that our entire team came up with at the Housing Authority, so this included all of our staff members, uh, was that we advance social equity and grow thriving communities by providing quality, safe, affordable housing and resources for residents. The vision statement we worked on states, our revolutionary housing practices ensure all residents experience self-sufficiency and are connected to healthy, inclusive, and vibrant communities. The strategic primary goals of all of our staff when we met, we, we did have some senior staff meetings, but we also had um, all of our staff really buy-in, I like using the word buy-in because it makes it sound like we had something to start with that they kind of bought into, but really they were part of the foundational conversation that got us to where we are today with the strategic plan. And it was really important to all the staff that we become a high-functioning agency. It, this would solidify operational effectiveness and it would also brand the housing authority. We also all agreed that we wanted to ensure fiscal resilience and sustainability um, with a continued focus on fiscal sustainability as well as self-sufficiency. And we all wanted to be a leader in innovative programming. We wanted to foster healthy, inclusive, and vibrant communities. Next slide, please. Um, when talking about commission and how the commission and this body can support the strategic plan and the work being done, uh, we looked at how the commission could advocate for resources, how the commission could advance policies and their position as policymakers that support equitable service delivery, and to ensure staff pilot policies with great impact that will be copied by the rest of the country such that the housing authority becomes a model in this industry. 
We also really looked at outcome driven. I think one of the questions that's often asked is, what does this all mean? What is the goal? So when we looked at our goals, we looked at what do we want? When we looked at our objectives, we said, what's behind the goal we want? When we looked at the projects, we said, how do we get there? And then when we looked at key, K, um, KPIs, also known as key performance indicators, we really had to focus on how do you measure success? How do we know we've gotten there? So in the next slide, this is just an example. This is an actual uh, goal and KPI that's in the strategic plan, just so that the commission has an idea of what you know, each one of these look like. One of our goals was to be a leader in innovative programming. That's the what do you want. The objective, what's behind the goal, is we want to ensure engagement of communities, voices, and involvement. The project, also known as how do we get there, is looking at working closely with our CBOs to engage with the communities, creating smaller hubs for better access, involving residents in programming, such as volunteers and internships that could lead to jobs, providing translation services and increasing access to information and resources, involving communities in decision-making, and supporting positive relationships between partners and residents. When we looked at the KPIs, this is how we measure success, we want to see an increase in resident survey responses by 25%. We want to see an increase in resident community meeting participation to be regularly attended by 30 or more residents. We also want to see an increased resident advisory board participants to go to up to 30 people. Some of the questions that had been raised prior to the committee meeting that we wanted to just bring up here as well to the full commission is uh, about contract monitoring. And items described in the strategic plan are only possible with accurate contract monitoring. So the strategic plan has to be aligned with our general scorecard reports, with our RFPs, with the performance that contractors are, uh, are, whether they're performing or not. We cannot be successful in our strategic plan without monitoring all of our contracts. When we look at racial equity action plan, the strategic plan really is a living working product. And if it's realized, then we should see equity within not just our communities, but within our staff and within our environment. When we look at measurable outcomes, we really focused a lot of time on the key performance indicators. Um, and, and oftentimes, the measurable outcomes are by this commission. When, they, when you all ask us for reporting, what is the reporting and what's the goal of the, that reporting? Um, but for the strategic plan specifically, we did spend quite a bit of time, I want to just in, highlight that around the key performance indicators, what is possible in year one, and who's going to be performing those key performance indicators within each department. And then lastly, the strategic plan is intended to be a living document, similar to the last strategic plan that retrieved the housing authority into standard status, this one will lead us to high performer. There are cross-references with the annual plan. There are also cross-references with the consolidated plan of the city and county of San Francisco. And once again, the key performance indicators are identified. Partnerships, we spent a lot of time talking about partnerships. What was interesting is that every time we split up the groups, partnerships was always a central area that was brought up by every single group that we worked with and how important our success is only by the partners that we, we choose to do business with or that we're engaged with because we know that we can't do all this work by ourselves. So this was a recurring theme in the strategic plan. We all agreed that we need to work with stakeholders and partners for services. We all agreed that we need to strengthen relationships within the city and county of San Francisco departments. 
the city and county has a significant amount of departments and having the transition team with us has really opened the doors and our eyes to all the different resources that the city has to offer to strengthen the programs that we have in the relationships. And we also wanted to make sure that there was a seamless process desired for recipients to be housed, acknowledging that there are gonna be obstacles. Um, the next steps is bringing this item before the Board of Commissioners today, February 29, 2024. If approved, we would submit to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development March 1st, 2024, just to let them know that we have met another, another item within the Corrective Action Plan. Um, and what's not here is that we do have, like I said, our KPI schedule, and we, we are already working on the implementation of that KPI schedule. So um, that concludes the presentation, but if any commissioners have questions, please feel free to ask. I do have some questions. Do. <laughs> um, I, I just want to ensure that the oversight of contractors is something that is part of our strategic plan as well and those responsibilities. Um, uh, and the only other element that I have as a question is the level of communication with other departments within the city as well, in addition to pursuing those partnerships. Um, uh, because I know that that level of coordination and communication is essential to the continued growth of the authority and service of the city's interests. Um, and I just want to make sure that that is part of those objectives as well. Um, uh, as part of those considerations. Those are my only comments or questions. I know it's been a very substantive process. Um, I very much appreciate the amount of work that's gone into it. Um, and that is all I have. You can just give me a minute, Commissioner, because I do know for, I know, I know for a fact that the partnerships are throughout the strategic plan. Mm -hmm. If you're asking for something to clearly be delineated as contractor oversight, uh, I do want to make sure that's in here before I say yes. Yeah, you want to give me just a minute? Yes, I mean, I, I, I think there was something about contract monitoring. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in the strategic plan. Mm -hmm. I, I, just want, I just want to make sure that it was clearly present there, especially given the conversations we've been having among other items tonight. Since we're highlighting items, I shall just, I, you know, the commission support ensures staff pilot policies with great impact that will be copied by the rest of the country, such that housing authority becomes a model, which is wonderful. Just ask that the policies and procedures are one of these where it's great impact copied, like it's a model, right? It's that sort of, thank you. And, and it, is, it is here on Commissioner on page 452, providing excellent contract administration. What does that mean? It's under the high performing uh, goal. And can I, can I go through how we're gonna implement that? Just at, just at a high level, I just am asking for what that means. So we see it as, we I think as an agency, we see it as being able to, one, know what are, what's happening with our contractors at any given time, right? We see it as residents on a basic level, not calling to complain on a daily basis about their experience with the housing authority, regardless of what contractor we are, the housing authority. Um, and we see it as having contractors that are true partners, that are telling us what's happening uh, on the ground, that are telling us what's happening with their recertifications, that are telling us when something is backlogged, so that these are not surprises to us. I think at a basic level, that's contract administration. That's, that's great. The, the, um, 
There has been, I just want to highlight this. Um, th there have been conversations about, well, this is what they should be doing. And in the environment that we're in, uh, while that would be the most ideal context in which we'd be working, it is certainly not the reality. And it's just a reminder that I think we're, and we've also had these discussions with the city as well, is that um, it just ain't that easy. And I, I just want to be sure that that level of oversight and commitment to ensuring that we're pressing contractors to fulfill their obligations in response to RFPs and contracting dollars they're receiving for services is part of our work as well, even though that should not be the case, it, it is. So fully agree with you, Commissioner. That's all I need to hear then. That's, that, that's great. Uh, well, I'm not done. <laughs> I fully agree with you. And I believe that we do that. We have monitoring in process constantly. We're increasing that monitoring as we are working our way through the reporting systems that we have, as well as ensuring that our vendor, where we have our system of record for all of our work, is adding certain components for us so that we're able to pull the data. And the better our data becomes in the system makes it much more easier for us to do the type of monitoring that um, our analysts are doing on behalf of the agency. So I, we fully agree with you and continue to work very diligently around the monitoring process as well as um, a kind reminder that you said it's not easy. Um, it's very difficult. It, if we talk about a challenge, I think one of my greatest challenges sitting in this role is our dependency on a contractor. And while we have visibility, we don't manage their staff. And we have lots of dialogue with our contractors. My team spends at least three good days in meetings, back-to-back -back type of meetings around all of our processes. So it remains one of our highest priorities in our work because that's the only way that we are going to be a high-performing agency, an agency that serves with excellent. You mean a high-functioning agency, which is what it says the language is in the strategic plan. It's it's high-performing, <laughs> high-functioning, yeah. highly collaborative organization. Highly transparent. Oh, yes, we're definitely... I'm looking at Commissioner Kim right now. Commissioner Kim, highly transparent. Highly transparent. And I, I think um, as we do the... So I was looking at these different ones, right? And so I do think that they Which ones actually, are you looking at? I'm sorry. So when you think about uh, contract monitoring... Yes. It's ensuring effective um, performance monitoring, making data... Uh, driven decisions, mm -hmm. um, all tie in effective communication, transparent process, those all tie in and link to contract administration. Yes. As long as that, that's intentionally done. It could not be intentionally done and you have all these different things that don't necessarily come together. And it's, it's really just to reiterate the importance of having a true partner in our contractors. Just to give you some numbers, we have over 30,000 individuals that are in our programs. Our contractors each have about 60 to 70 employees at any given time, our large contractors. And the housing authority staff is between 25 and 30 at any given time. 
So we rely on our contractors to inform us of what's happening. We have uh, some areas where we can do checks and balances, but the reality is we cannot be at every place, at every site, all the time with the amount of staff that we have. And then if I may, just one final comment. Um, the work is not easy, but it's important for this body to hear the issues transparently that are going on within the organization. Um, and just to constantly um, uh, encourage a culture of, of sharing that information and having honest conversations here about those issues. It's just the, um, it's the only way that we can progress. And irrespective of whether there is um, a negative comment about our work, which is primarily the role of uh, those who want to criticize us during a moment in time, those are just some of the realities that we'll have to face as we move through this constant reform effort um, and getting to where we want to get to, which is everything we mentioned about the overall mission and vision of the organization. So I just wanted to share that as well, and then uh, that's all I have to say. I appreciate that comment, and that is, that is really true. Sometimes it's really difficult as an agency, as a CEO, as a perfectionist, who together we strive um, to transform. And on a daily basis, as you've stated, I think as we unravel the many things in the agency, if we look back and we see today, even as you acknowledge, an investment policy that we actually can um, realize wasn't something that we imagined almost five years ago, but today we can imagine that. And so there are a lot of things that we are imagining through the transformation as we, as a team, also have to recognize that the work at times is very difficult, but it is work that's necessary. And through this board's guidance, we're doing it. And yes, there's, there are going to be pitfalls, things that occur, and there will be um, negative comments made and forgetting about all the good work that's occurring. And each and every day, we're finding ways to course correct where needed. And so, again, we appreciate that reminder because I think it's really important for us to be able to say to you as our board, as our commission, this is a struggle for us. And here are the things that we're putting in place as we're going through this process. So I appreciate having that ability to be transparent in that way in this space. So thank you. Have a comment? Yeah, please. <laughs> Sorry. I know it's late. I just want to thank you for your model of discussion for your differences as a commission because I just really, it's highly functional. <laughs> so thank you for that. I just needed a clarifying question. When I asked about um, if I could present a formal proposal to you, you happened to mention, and you could at CCSD too, and I don't know if you understood that this would be more of like, I don't know if they would welcome the reform of asking for a new manager over their 
I didn't know what you meant by that. Oh, Jess said there's a, form, um, uh, a formalized process if you wanted to bring that for discussion. You have that time to bring that during your CCSD report. Sure. Yeah, and we're happy to hear that in addition to other forums of discussion okay. we can have. Okay, about thanks. That. I just yeah, wanted to make sure. Absolutely. Thank you very much for everything today. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for being here all night. <laughs> Doesn't appear there's any additional public comment. Ask for a motion for approval. So moved. And a second. Second. Roll call vote, President Torres. Aye. Commissioner Lindo. Aye. Commissioner Kim. Aye. And Commissioner Pikes. Aye. So moved. That just leaves item number 13 for commissioner's comment report and number 14 for adjournment. Uh, it is with great sadness um, that I just want to take a moment of silence as we close this meeting to recognize the passing of a very young uh, leader of uh, the Tenderloin Neighborhood Development Center, Marilio Leon, uh, who passed away uh, very suddenly. Uh, this past week. Uh, he was, um, uh, he showed so much promise and it's very unfortunate that uh, he passed at such a young age in his 40s. Um, and uh, I know I just want to extend his condolences to his family um, and to everyone in the Tenderloin community uh, within the organization, but also the neighborhood who benefited and would have greatly benefited from his continued service. Uh, in San Francisco and through that organization. So if we can just take a moment of silence in Marilio's name, uh, I'd appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, please. But I did just want to say thank you because we had three staff members today who uh, presented their first policies to the Housing Authority. So I really want to give a thank you to Ray Lobo, or one of our budget analysts who prepared the investment policy, Ted Perini, our senior HR analyst who prepared the personnel policy, and Zawadi Langa, our attorney who uh, prepared the procurement policy. They've been working on this for quite some time and just want to make sure to thank them. And I, it would um, be remiss of me to not include Kate Shepard from Sea Change Grow, who helped facilitate all of our strategic planning meetings. Thank you, Commissioner, for the opportunity. Thank you so much for sharing that. All right, move to adjourn. Time is 8.48 p.m. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>